0: So I don't know shit about comic book artists, but this is episode 30 of the Jock and Nerd Podcast, and this is Comic Book Artists You Should Know, Volume 2.
1: It's the Jockey and Nerd
2: Podcast, with your hosts, Anthony and Imran. Oh, hello, friend. Welcome to episode thirty, big three O of the Jock and Nerd podcast. My name is Imran.
3: My name is Anthony. My name is Rugberto Bambino.
0: He's the jock, and he's the rug boy. And he's the nerd,
2: the, I, and then he's the rug boy, and, and
0: then I, you're the nerd. Jo- I thought I was
2: the judge. Jo- no, Wait, I'm the nerd. I don't know which one was I again.
0: I have no idea what's going on. Uh, we just confused. What just happened? I think we confused. Like now, them. my brain is melted. This is
3: episode. <laughs> That's the acid.
2: We, uh, you know, the big news is we made it to episode thirty, oh, friends. Yeah, holy crap! Welcome.
3: That's the end so of so you're our old life. Enough to have kids and be miserable and divorced. Yeah, this is it.
2: It's pretty much it's all downhill from here, folks. The big three O's, yeah, guys. That's it. Oh shit! Yeah. No, it's not, it, it, This is great. There's hairs to like three hundred more.
3: Yeah, uh, what happens when you're thirty? Like you start growing hair out of your ears. Is that yeah, what yeah,
2: yeah. Hair starts the coming out. Of- start
3: to sag a little bit.
2: You got to shave. So, you got to groom extra places Imran, that you didn't do you, have do you, to.
3: Do you have hair coming out of your ears?
2: I have hair coming out of my eyeballs. <laughs> I could be the werewolf of American werewolf in America. But the good thing is it's
3: clear. Yeah, not just shaves the part of his face that – like this forehead and his cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just lets everything else go.
2: You see this beard? Like I shaved this morning my whole face.
3: <laughs> your hair is clear though so like you uh, can't see it. Yeah, it's, so tran- it's, like, yeah, it's translucent.
2: translucent. There you go. Ah, in combination between the invisible girl and man-wolf. <laughs> That. Have sense. you seen the
0: reviews for Fantastic
2: Four? Oh, don't even we can't we can't <laughs> even that's a whole <laughs> another
0: don't because you're yeah, gonna be it it's own show. Oh do, you, do you think there's a
3: better movie out there that didn't get put out by uh the people? Did you hear that about Trank? Yeah. yeah. No, there's I think that's bullshit. I think it sucked even more. I think, and then they made it look like they made it like uh, shorter so people wouldn't hate it as much.
0: He's like ruined his career. There's large
2: portions <laughs> that seem missing.
3: There's Have you seen it?
2: No, yeah, I oh, saw it. I saw oh, it. I'm
3: going to see it after. Oh, you haven't seen it yet? Good no, uh, Boy.
2: All right, well, good luck with that. Okay. Uh,
3: we can do a whole show on that. No, we will. And we will. Rugby, Rug you, you're going to be on You it. want in on that one? Uh, I haven't seen Fantastic Four. I might watch it. Well, ha- I don't know. Ha- i got to see if anybody will know will, will, will buy my ticket. You have
0: to watch a movie that, that gets under 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, hurry up and watch
2: <laughs> The Turd so we can talk about it. So we can shit on it. So we can shit on it somewhere. <laughs> well, look,
3: we got- I can probably get a bootleg- I know a guy. Yeah,
2: just get a stream.
3: There but you go.
2: But like, that's a whole other uh, thing right there because I've had – I got a lot of thoughts. How did this even come up anyways? You uh, always derail the show. I'm sorry. No, we uh, – <laughs> l- welcome, listener. Thanks if you're just joining us. This is part two of this multi-part series we started last month called Comic Book Artist You Should Know.
0: And I wasn't on that show. No, you weren't. very informative. Just, yes. It was just you and Rug Boy, but – I don't know shit about these guys, so I'm going to learn as we go along, just like the listener, and hopefully ask some questions that the casual listener would would have.
2: Absolutely. You're going to kind of play my role in the uh, Godzilla and the UFC show. I didn't know what was going on, really, but (laughs) acted like I did.
3: Bayback's Uh, a bitch.
2: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, And Rugboy was with us on that first show, and uh, so I'm really excited. I have five amazing, fascinating stories of five great Uh, grandfathers of comic book art, guys who created this graphic language, guys that influenced tons of people and still influence people to this day, and they will always continue to influence
3: people. Yeah, and the great thing about a lot of these guys is that their shit is like, you don't know that they did this shit, half of the stuff. Like, it's just been in the fabric of of nerd shit.
2: Yes. Uh, Listener, believe me, I have stories from the crazy to the tragic – uh, these stories of these artists—they all kind of intertwine, weave in and out of each other. It's like a crazy Quentin Tarantino movie. Like I learned a lot uh, this last week and a half doing research for the show, and I'm very excited. Do Imran- you think that, oh, yeah. that they
3: have like comic book art history classes in like in college now? I no? think
2: they should. If you're teaching writing, definitely, do. and if you're teaching art. Sequential art, you know, that was my always my dream class that I just wanted to take a sequential art history. I I find it
3: fascinating. Yeah, they probably
0: do. I mean, it's it's a true American art form. They probably do. There's movie classes in some colleges that are doing like MCU studies. Dude,
2: there's classes on like The Simpsons and shit. Like, there's got
0: to be. So there has to be. Imran usually prepares amazing show notes, and this is no. This episode is no different. And you can find these show notes at jockandnerd.com slash 30. Yep. Or jockandnerd.com slash comic book artists two, the number two.
2: The number two. And if you want to check out the first part of this, volume one was about a month ago. You can find that at jockandnerd.com slash comic book artists one. Anthony, who did we talk about on that show? You listened.
0: Who did, did we talk about? So you guys covered John Buscema. Yeah, Buscema. Buscema. Oh, I don't know. Jim Starenko, John Romita Sr. Barry Windsor Smith and Joe Kubert. Yeah. So if you guys want to find out about those guys, listen to that last episode. Imran just plugged.
2: Yeah. So I'm working. Those are like the uh, 15 through 11. We're going to do 10 10 through six. six. And then next month we'll hit uh, the top, the greats.
0: You'll have the greats. And then you have a show planned. And then
2: No, it could keep going. And then we're just going to talk about, you know, artists we love and other guys who had impact. But all these guys – had uh, – I'm just going to say this once. All these guys were influential. They had impact. There's no need for me to keep repeating it no. because this is just going to be implied this whole episode. Right. Everything these guys did, they did it first. Everything these guys – this these guys were like – you ever watch Casablanca now uh, and you watch it and you're like, this movie is just a series of movie cliches. Mm-hmm. Like this, everything is one cliche of another. Well, you know, remember is that that was the first movie to do all those cliches. Right. Everybody copied from those. These
0: guys set the standard much the same way. Just talk about real quick before we get into the discussion about the artists. You guys both have done art, right? So, yes, we come. I come from an
2: illustration drawing background. Uh, Rugboy, you like to doodle.
3: Yeah, I doodle when I'm on the phone. There you I'm like, if I'm waiting on the phone for Verizon, I like doodle stuff.
2: You doodle it on the phone.
3: Mostly penises. Yeah, they're
2: very easy, big, big veiny ones. Yeah, yeah. But I'm
3: really good. I got. I know all the styles. I could like do it. like I do it like Michelangelo. Yeah. I could do it like uh, you could do like
2: the, uh, the showa showa era of like, penises. Michelangelo yeah. would be like through, what two incher?
3: <laughs> yeah, I know it all. I'm the I'm the king of drawing cocks. Uh,
2: yeah, David did have a tiny pecker there in the final yeah, statue of that. Too? Look, uh, it, just it must must been it. a cold day. Right? It was shrinkage. He was very he was very embarrassed. Uh, Rugboy can draw all the Godzilla penises from all the different eras of Godzilla. It's very yeah, fascinating.
3: Very green. And they're you should ve- see my Millennium version. Oh
2: boy, you should see mine. <laughs> it's oh, spikes on it. They're- <laughs> Ow. They're very clearly demarcated eras of the Godzilla penis. Anyways, back no, to the no comic book. what
3: we're talking about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you guys like Godzilla, go check out episode 18. Go to jockandair.com slash Godzilla. Godzilla, yeah. For the great big Godzilla nerd Point show.
0: being is you guys have done this before and drawn stuff so yes. you guys know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so it'll be yeah. interesting
2: from you someone who's maybe more into the writing and the characters right. and doesn't maybe notice the art all the time but it's all. there yeah. obviously this is what's telling the story what you feel about uh these greats and and what you know what it makes reminds you of
0: right i mean as a casual comic book artist yeah person looking at these things yeah i i can tell when it's bad i just don't know when Ooh. i when it's like really good or why it's why, bad or why it's bad and why it's really
2: good. i mean ultimately it's subjective but then again there are a lot of things that just need to be there. right? And you again, you don't know why, but it, it works. But there's reasons. Is Rob Layfield ever going to show up on this one? Oh, boy. He could be in like <laughs> uh, maybe the uh, – He draws feet I would love really that. well. Maybe the overrated artist. <laughs> he oh, draws feet really oh good. Oh, shit. Oh, boy. I mean he's going to be – maybe when the Deadpool movie comes out, we'll put him in the uh, – Banishing we'll, rob,
3: rob Did, did you realize, Anthony, that Rob Layfield is not a good artist or did someone have to tell you that?
0: I read an article where they were pointing out the patches – and the unnecessary muscles, and that he could never draw feet. And I looked at all the art, and I was like, oh, crap. But it, it, I remember in the 90s looking at comics, and I'm like, why are these guys so muscular? Like, why are their muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles?
2: See, that's interesting that even the, a lay person it's noticing that, like, you don't know what foreshortening is, but you know for damn sure your hand is not supposed to look like that when it's coming straight at you, right. and these feet are too tiny to support this giant body.
0: Yeah, and why do they have all these pouches? Uh,
2: yeah, what are they got? <laughs> they got lots of uh, cookies like, and cookies and jelly beans. Maybe you
0: got condoms in one pouch. What do you, you keep in your pouch?
2: Granola bars. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Beads? Anal beads? The fanny pack was very popular <laughs> in the 90s. Wait, Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You need to have your pouches outside of your pants. You can't just have regular pockets where you just stick something in your like pocket.
1: Yeah,
2: like
3: normal people they don't have this problem. The superheroes,
2: they we this are superheroes. They need their
0: special superhero snacks.
3: superheroes.
0: Next. I remember the, the 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 last episode. You guys kind of got into a discussion between the Golden Age and the Silver Age, and then. Rugboy brought up, well, what started the Bronze Age? Yeah, Rugboy,
2: right? you had a really good question. So here's what we're gonna do: I have all that. We're gonna cap off the episode with uh, what started the Bronze Age and kind of what started and ended all the ages. Perfect. Some of it is debatable. I'll learn too. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, as we mentioned in that la- in that last volume one, that comics historians uh, talk about comics and they divide the history of comic into ages. Uh, we have the Golden Age. starts of the Golden Age, 1938 to 1950. Okay. Followed by the Silver Age, there's a little bit of a break from 1956 to 1970.
0: Do you know why there was a break like that? Yes. we got All that will be
2: at the end after we get through these five amazing stories of these artists. The Bronze Age started 1970, ended about 1985, 1986, and then people consider the Modern Age, also called the Dark Age of comics, uh, 1985 to present.
0: I feel like just as a layman looking at the art now, I feel like the Modern Age, there's a – there's a clear distinction. I mean,
2: Really? You think so? In the 90s there, when all the muscles and all that stuff Well, but it's also a lot of people it's a lot of people consider the bronze age never ended
1: uh,
3: also. Okay.
2: There's you know what? what I think?
3: Yeah. I think that there was a reverence for like um, the art form like a long time ago like in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah. Like like when comics first came out there was no rules. Like there was nobody defining the genre. All right. So all these guys that we're going to talk about come in and kind of set the tone and say, okay, this is how you tell a story. This is how you use blacks. This is how you ink something. This is how you stage. And so then there becomes like a fan fandom of the, of the art form. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the silver age people were like taking all the stuff that had been established and really using it. Yeah. Then by the time the nineties roll around, everybody forgets about this shit. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. they just kind of like, because you grow up with cartoons, you grow up with G.I. Joe, you grow up with Transformers, you watch animated movies, and those things start to, like, inform everything. Yep. And then, and then it starts to get bad because, you know, animation is, like, the most simplified form of drawing because they got to move mixed cells that move stuff.
2: Right, so right. And all this so you attention strip to it detail. Down. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's all stripped down. Yeah. So they're, these people, are. they're not being educated by the masters anymore. Right educated by the most stripped down kind of stuff, which is still good, but that was changed that's what that influence changes the art form.
2: That I mean it's very interesting to say that because some of the well you'll notice is when the age switches I think my
3: brain is melting
2: some, <laughs> Oh shit. Good job. Some of the when it changed ages, a lot of it was rebelling against what was going on in the last era. But then the next one would be like an homage going back to the founding and then it would rebel again and then so it's this constant Balance of, you know, trying something new and different, but still paying attention to just foundation of storytelling and the language that was created to, you know, that everyone is kind of used to and aware of. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's get started. Yeah, let's then. get into these, some
0: of these masters of art. The Junk Junk
2: and Nerd
1: Podcast.
2: Junk and Nerd. So we said... The volume one, we talked about who we talked about that.
0: Now we're moving into number 10. So, number 10 here, Gil Kane. Oh, he was born January 31st, yeah. 1927, and died in 2000. So, he's 73 years old. Yeah, no longer with us. No longer with is us. Is he related to Bob Kane?
2: He is not related that's to Bob Kane. That's the first Kane. guy I thought of, yeah, that, Bob Kane. Yeah, that's.
3: Okay, no, and there's no relation then.
2: I, not that I could find. That never okay, came this
3: up. Is my, this is my next question. Yeah. Does he have gills or a Kane? <laughs> like, can he breathe underwater? And does he have any trouble walking?
2: I'm Gills wow. Kane, uh, Channel Two News.
0: That almost sounds like a news anchor name.
2: I believe he has neither the gills nor the canage required right. to have. The he's name. like he's
0: like a cross between Gil- Aquaman King. and Penguin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. He should have started really instead of comic books. He should have started a cane store called Gil's
3: so, Canes. I'm taking that's not his original name. He then he would have uh, it. Oh, it
0: fill us in on who this guy is because we're clearly unaware of what who he is and what's going so, on. So right Gil
3: Kane, uh, ladies
2: and gentlemen, worked during all ages of comic books from the golden age to the present. In high school, as a teenager, Gil Kane worked for MJL Comics, which would later become Archie Comics. In production, he would do uh, borders on pages, word balloons. Apparently, letters would only write the letters. Like, they wouldn't even draw their own word balloon. So he would go back in and draw the word balloon. He gets fired after a couple weeks. He's learning here. He goes to this really cramped agency on Fifth Avenue, begins penciling there. He gets fired from there, gets rehired by MJL a couple weeks later, and finally gets to do a whole issue of one of their leading books. It's called uh, The Shield.
3: And, and Dusty? Dusty is the name. Okay. But yeah, it's kind of like a Captain America thing.
2: Yeah, the shield was like the original, like a Captain America clone. This is, and this
3: is not, oh, this has no affiliation with Marvel's shield. No,
2: this okay. is uh, this is MJL, MJL which Comics. was Archie, turns into Archie. So his earliest known credit is inking in Zip Comics, number 14, 1941, where he signs Gil Kane. This is notable because he was actually born, funny how we were talking about his name, Eli Katz. Jewish? Ah. Yeah, yes. yes. So a lot of these guys in that uh, Depression era, post-pre-war, like they were changing their names Change, when they came over. So they
0: didn't come, over, come across yeah. as really
2: Jewish? Yes. Hmm. That happened oh, a lot. Right. And I think we mentioned that in the last show. So Eli Katz is really Gil Kane. Uh, so he does some work for the future Marvel and future DC in 1944. This is the oh, le-
0: so before they were Marvel. Before,
2: yeah, when they were Timely and Atlas. So this is the the mid 40s. He does some uncredited ghost work for the great Jack Kirby, which we also we talked about in the last episode. Everybody ghosted for Jack Kirby. He goes to the army, World War II, comes back, and just continues to pencil. In 1949, Gil Kane begins this. Relationship with professional editor Julius Schwartz. Better known,
3: it was a platonic relationship.
2: It was a platonic relationship, and Julius is a man. Yes. But it also makes it confusing when you're like, he starts a relationship. I just heard how that sounded in yeah. my head and it sounded very weird. It does. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why, why I'm reading read it. So. it so Julius Shorts is a man, but he's an uh, amazing editor at DC. Uh, people refer to him as Jules, Julie Shorts. You'll hear Julie Shorts all the time. It's a dude though. And he becomes, he's an editor at National Comics, which eventually becomes DC Comics. Interesting. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. In the 50s, uh, Gil Kane is now freelancing for National, and he creates some of comics' most seminal DC characters. He designed the modern-day version of gr- uh, Green Lantern. He took the 40s version and uh, redesigned it and penciled it, the first 75 issues of the Green Lantern.
3: Yeah, the Green Lantern's much cooler now because he used to have this weird, like, uh, tunic yeah, stuff Yeah, like from that. the lamp.
2: The lamp and the wood version. The wood version. To the, the actual Hal Jordan pilot with the green costume.
3: Yeah, it was that's was like, Scott wait. before. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yes. It was, and uh, Kane and writer. So Gil Kane goes on with, combines with writers, creates a bunch of awesome characters. Kane and writer John Broom turn Carol Ferris into Star Sapphire.
0: She was hot. Yes.
2: They create Black Hand. Well, okay. Back then, when and well, he had an old the school guy, yeah, man. and he had the blackest hand storyline, in the you know in the two thousands yep. blackest night, the uh, blackest, blackest hand, blackest th- <laughs> hand, the blackest hand, you <laughs> ever <laughs> got to see, but black hand, black hand was created in nineteen sixty four, and Guy Gardner in nineteen sixty eight is invented,
0: <laughs> the blackest
2: hand, I the blackest
3: hand. <laughs> I read Something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Nerd.
0: <laughs> the
3: blackest <laughs> man with the blackest hands. Man... <laughs> I
2: think that was yeah, that was a black exploitation film in the 70s. Also wrote some black exploitation film. No, he did it. He did not write that, making that. Gil Kane joins with writer Gardner Fox and they update The Adam, little guy. Okay. Right? They make him into his mom. They made him version. Brandon Routh. Uh, they made No, this is before. <laughs> oh, okay. They made him who he is today. Uh, he briefly does some freelance work on some Hulk stories while at DC. He moonlights at Marvel and does something that nobody did at the time. He used his real name in both places.
0: Uh, yeah, well, he used his real name at DC or at, with Marvel. At DC and-,
2: and Marvel at the same time because – a lot of artists would moonlight one mm. for the other, but they would use pseudonyms. So they would, obviously, wouldn't get busted. Nobody finds out. They don't get in trouble because they're, you know, they're Marvel's right like they the enemy. That. You know, yeah. you, you got like a so, double agent. So for
0: <laughs> Marvel, he's Eli Katz.
2: No, no. He used his real name and he did what nobody did. It just went and used his real name for both.
1: For both. He used the name that
2: he used Yoke for Kim. everything. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was, but it was something you didn't do. He just didn't give a fuck. He's like, yeah, I'm working over here now. He's Whatever. Boss. Yeah. yeah. Kane and Stan Lee create the Hulk's enemy, Abomination,
0: which is cool. Who could be considered Hulk's arch enemy.
2: Uh, One of his arch enemies, greatest, in Tales to Astonish, number 90, in 1967. So he succeeds. This is why he is my guy. Kane succeeds John Romita Sr. on Amazing Spider-Man in the early
0: 1970s. Anyone that draws Spider-Man does do they do they automatically become your guy?
2: Nah, well,
0: not necessarily. Are there non? Are there artists you don't like that have drawn
3: Spider-Man? Oh yeah, okay. Good. There's a few. Uh, off, just just like, trying
2: to establish. Tom Lyle, we looking at you. Oh boy. <laughs> Wait. Oh my God. What was that name? Yeah, I remember him. Tom Lyle. Yeah. Yeah, that was. It was lazy. I remember.
3: It's like if you took Mark Bagley and took a shit on him.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I like Bagley. He works. He's a hard worker. Uh, just like all these guys. So in the seventies. Gil Kane goes on to become one of the preeminent cover artists. Basically, every comic book cover a Spider- Amazing Spider-Man in the seventies that is a Gil Kane cover. Gil Kane and Stanley in nineteen seventy one famously, and you might have heard of this, challenge the Comics Code Authority with a three issue story arc in Amazing Spider-Man uh, numbers ninety six through ninety eight in nineteen seventy one. This is a Green Goblin anti drug storyline. Now, the Comics Code Authority does not like any mention of any drugs at the time. Yeah. They're very they're policing
3: everything. Yes,
2: they're very like hardcore. That Nazis was something you this.
0: couldn't you couldn't uh, talk about, huh? No, was It was like drugs, sex, yes. anything like that.
2: Now, but check this out. This story, I remember this story. I remember uh, vividly these panels. It starts out with Spidey swinging around, and you see it's this black hippie dude, and he's all on a rooftop, and he's just dancing around, and there's little stars, and he's. High on quote unquote drugs.
0: And he's got the blackest hand.
2: He's got the blackest hand t shirt (laughs) on. That should be, that's a great name for like a, a black punk band. I think. Yeah,
3: and oh, the you bitch slap people. <laughs>
2: yeah, or a superhero, yeah. <laughs> so he's dancing hot and he falls and Spidey saves him and the guy's just all high and willing. He Doesn't, he's doesn't
0: like, give a fuck. He's, no, yeah. He's
2: cool. And so Peter's like, whoa, what's this? And also at home, Harry Osborn is popping pills. Like the way they showed the drugs, there was it was like pills. And I think some he's of like it
0: was Jesse
3: like... Jesse Spano. Yeah, it was like... Ah, is is so there so any so speculation I mean. on your guys' part what drugs these guys were yeah, on? Right, they're goddamn. Speed. They had a the thing. They had uppers and speed and all that stuff. Yeah, what I mean, what, what I, makes I, you loopy cool. and dancing on a
2: road? Well, I, I think they—they're trying to imply hallucinogenics. Maybe yeah. some acid. Maybe uh, But they would know. show it cool as, as I mean. pills. But quaaludes just make you really calm, don't they? They don't make no, you know they, all night.
0: They, they give you like a body high. If you watch Wolf of Wall Street, you'll know. God
2: damn it, I got to watch that movie.
0: So, <laughs> you haven't watched that? I still haven't
2: watched that. Don't yell at me. Right Everyone's right. yelling at me for not watching <laughs> that movie. Uh, so uh, also in this arc, so Harry's popping pills at, at home because MJ is like showing more attention to Peter. than hey, I mean, him. I'd imagine Harry's probably love popping triangle.
0: prescription pills.
2: Eh, He's rich, right? Yeah, yeah, no, he can get drugs. They showed it as pills. But this was the first story arc in mainstream comic that portrayed drug abuse and condemned drug abuse. It was anti-drug, obviously. In fact, in 1970, the Nixon administration's Department of Health, Education, and Welfare asked Stan Lee to publish an anti-drug comic book. They wanted him to use one of his most famous characters at the time and publish anti-drug message. Stan goes ahead and he gets this thing done. Now, the Comics Code is not willing to put their little stamp on this book. He says, fuck you, puts the book out anyways. It sells huge. It, uh, it warrants critical acclaim. The code is revised. <laughs> the Comics Code Authority revises the code. That's pretty awesome. Weeks later, the, the, the monumental Green Lantern, Green Arrow storyline with Speedy on heroin – Comes out, comes out at DC. So and Marvel did it first. Marvel changed all this. That's as right, a, As a
0: casual fan, I thought DC changed it, because I know uh, about that cover with yep. Speedy doing the fucking heroin yep. shit. So I thought they were the Gil ones. Kane it. Gil Stan Kane and Stan Lee challenged this first. And you, have some, and you have a little bit of info, too, on the comic We comic got comics, a right? kind of sidebar. First oh. of
2: many sidebars this episode, because these things go off, and they're very interesting. Now, you may be wondering, what is the comics code authority? Yeah, I am. It was formed in 1954.
0: It's that big stamp on the old comics. It's,
2: that I have, right? It is. It's that white stamp. It was a backlash to. So there's this guy, this psychologist who wrote this book. Psychologist Frederick Wortham. The book was called Seduction of the Innocent. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, just with that title, what do you think the book's about?
3: It's about how things. Well, I, and like in uh, that generation would be comic books, books, music, whatever is making the people, the the children you know, crazy. Yes. Like they're, they're tempting them into doing evil stuff. This they're just, like yeah. brainwashing the kids into being like uh, degenerates.
2: You know how they go? Uh, the video games are making kids violence now. Well, this is the beginning of that. In fact, it's been going on all time. Yeah. This is just a very early version. Basically the book was like comic books are destroying our youth and making them true of delinquents." Just, he wrote a book about this.
0: It's just people looking to blame Other than the bad parenting things for why their kids get fucked up.
2: This motherfucker had Senate hearings. (laughs) Exactly. He took this book to the Supreme Court, had Senate hearings, which caused the industry to have to self-regulate themselves, leading the Comics Magazine Association of America to form the Comics Code. To regulate the content of comic books. And it actually lasted until the early 21st century, believe it or not.
3: Really? Yes. When did they stop? Do you know? For yes. A-
2: Basically, the books would, that you would send in your book to apply for the white stamp that everyone's seen on the corner of the book. Saying this book is approved by the Comics Code Authority. By the early 2000s, newer publishers had started to bypass the Comics Code. And Marvel Comic Books abandoned it in 2001. By 2010, only three major publishers still used it. DC Comics, Archie Comics, Bongo Comics. Bongo broke with the Comics Code in 2010. DC and Archie followed in 2011. The Code is now officially defunct.
3: I think that that's going to come back. Really? Yeah, because Mm. what happens is the only thing that I've noticed that's a little... I mean, the violence levels have always been kind of similar. Yeah. Like, maybe they're a little bit more graphic now. Yeah. But I think it's the uh, inclusion of all of these alternate lifestyles that they're putting yeah, in the uh, comments that's exactly I what at i was some thinking point, like some conservative fuck is going to be like we can't
2: have you know what bro boy <laughs> As drug boy as you are, that's very astute observation. Because I kind of nobody
3: see cares that. about violence. No, nobody oh, yeah. cares about drug use. The
2: new Not demon big, is alternative. Yeah. That's
3: scaring old white people. is Yeah, this.
2: alternative lifestyles. Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of gay LGBT heroes and main characters.
3: Right. Yeah. There's like BLTs and all kinds of things. There's, uh, <laughs> there's all.
2: Oh shit. <laughs> there's a little D- take a little. D- I- I've D- never D- been a big go- fan
3: of BLTs. No.
2: No. <laughs> the, the bacon, lettuce, and tornadoes. Yes. Uh, okay, back to Gil Kane, people. Sidebars <laughs> <is> over. Gil <laughs> nerd. Uh, Gil Kane also drew the death of Gwen Stacy and the death of Green Goblin. Holy shit. He did, did a lot.
0: Did he mean to draw, draw it ambiguously like that? Yes. Yes, okay. I think so. Okay.
2: Uh, well, and we'll we'll get into, like, the, the plotting of these things and maybe why that happened and the Marvel method with Stan Lee. It's very okay. interesting. It ties into all this. Gil Kane and writer Roy Thomas revised Captain Marvel. They revamped Captain Warlock. They co-create Iron Fist and Morbius, the living vampire.
0: Wow. He's done some shit. He's
2: done a, yeah, lot, it's a lot of shit. It's a lot. I love Gil Kane's artwork. Gil Kane and Jerry Conway transformed J. Jonah Jameson's son to the man-wolf. There was their whole idea, the whole astronaut thing. There's a great – I pulled a quote from Jerry Conway about working with Gil Kane because it kind of talks about how he works. Jerry Conway says he was a marvelous draftsman and an idiosyncratic storyteller. I quickly learned that working with him Marvel style, that's when a writer gives the artist the plot and the artist breaks down the story panel by panel and page by page could sometimes result in lopsided storytelling. The first two-thirds of story would be leisurely placed and in the last third would be hell-bent for leather as gill tried to make up for loose storytelling in the first half so after doing a few stories with him in my usual loosely plotted style i began giving him tighter plots indicating where the story had to be by such and such page he seemed to prefer this and i'm generally happier with the later stories we did together so he was this is clearly how he'd love to work you know give him a little bit of freedom uh, but tell him where the pacing is and Gil kane's page pacing is amazing like it is the standard
0: I don't know what even that what does that mean his page pace
2: If you look at these pages the yeah. way the panels are laid out per page the way the panels are designed the way elements might break the panel and lead to another panel so the way the
0: flow your eyes
2: your flow. eyes flow okay. in you know your eyes should flow like a Z on any good composition that's what a storyteller always wants okay you know you cut across that and you could see this and i I'm, I'm, I'm showing him a page Uh, Spider-Man's hand swinging down, breaking the panel below it. Your eye follows perfectly the the story and comes back across.
3: That is really good. I always like consider Gil Kane to be kind of like in the Baroque school of uh, comic book art because – if you don't know broke means that there's a lot of diagonals, you know, and there's a lot of drama and yeah, everything. Yeah. So he always has something that's coming like diagonally across, even I if, see that. Top, yeah, if it's a yeah. composition.
2: Yep. Great, like great angles, great camera angles, yeah. a lot of anchored blacks to the bottom to hold the page down.
3: Motherfuckers using angles all over the place.
2: Yeah, like a like a skilled cinematographer, you know, like he's making a movie, which is what well, it was so great about his work. Let me tell you this about a lot of these guys right now. The Marvel method that he just mentioned, the plotting, the, the pacing of a lot of these early Marvel books was all the artists.
0: What, they were all following this.
2: Yeah. No, not that. It was entirely their plotting. They uh, ended up doing – They okay, this is what we're going to get into once we get – they ended up doing a lot of the writing and not getting a lot of the credit or any extra pay. This becomes a contention with all the great artists working at Marvel, as we will see. Okay.
3: So you're talking about how the story is broken up into panels. Yes. Basically.
2: Yes. They, I mean, they, they were pretty much writing.
3: They were co-writing with Stan Lee because Stan was writing well, a million think- books at the time. Do you think that they were writing panel one? This happens. No, right? No. They Stan, were writing, This is a synopsis and you break it down. Yeah. And then this is what they say.
2: This is what we're going to learn. Stan was giving them loose panels. He was working on so many books that he increasingly gave more freedom to the artist to actually plot and write the thing. All he would do, he would come in at the end without seeing what was drawn and fill in the dialogue. He oh. didn't know. He had to now fill in dialogue match to a potted page that he hadn't even seen. He just told him, go do this.
0: Oh, wow. So he okay. yeah, so he's creating the story based off what the artists have just drawn. Yes. That's
2: the, so like
3: not how people do things anymore.
2: No. Like, and the no, problem no. was this started rubbing all these artists the wrong way because they would not get extra credit well, how or do people extra do pay? things
3: now. Well, the way it's done is let's say Imran wants to write a comic book and I want to draw it. Okay. Imran will write a script and. Most of the time, not this is not like across the board, but most of the time, it'll be like almost like a movie script where, but in, he'll take the panels and say, "Panel one, uh, a guy with a huge dick takes off his pants." <laughs> in panel two, Ooh, the, I can draw that, no problem. Yeah, um <laughs> What color okay, is the dick? Panel two, like you know, a, a an airplane passes through. The, you know, whatever. So Passes over the dick. <laughs> yeah, passes <laughs> over the dick counterclockwise. <laughs> so, like, um, so basically, like, everything that's being drawn is, is being, like, laid out in a panel. So you might even know before you start drawing that you need five panels on a page. And you can oh. just sit there and mess around with it. how big is this panel, how big is that, blah, 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 how big is the dick. Like, all that stuff yeah. <laughs> is important. So um, it's almost like the writer has absolute power.
0: So the writer's almost telling you what to draw and you're just like, all right, I'll do it this way.
3: It's like like sometimes it's like if something like really complicated is going on, a writer will just be like, A huge fight happens. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes sometimes it's it's like okay, I'll figure that out.
2: Yeah, sometimes it's that loose. It really depends on the writer, but you know, Stan had to create this method because he was, you know, running multiple titles all by himself, writing everything, running around, trying to run the company. Right. And this helped him. But it didn't. The artist did not like it. Okay, anyways, back to Gil Kane. Gil Kane, at this time, was also working on a bunch of side projects with Archie Goodwin. This is interesting. He is credited for – there was a book called His Name is Savage that came out in 1968. It was a self-published 40-page magazine format comics novel. And there was another one called Black Mark from 1971, a science fiction sword and sorcery paperback published by Bantam Books. Both of these books are the earliest examples of – the graphic novel. Nobody was using this term at the time. Oh. This is the first time somebody used the term graphic novel. Gil Kane it can be credited to inventing the graphic novel. Wow, he's a motherfucker. Cool. Oh, shit. He did a lot of shit. He's a good guy. Uh, so during the 70s and 80s, Kane went, back, went to work with Hanna-Barbera. That name, Godzilla. And Ruby Spears, two of the biggest animation studios at the time. Like, Saturday morning, every show was Hanna-Barbera, Ruby Spears in the 80s. The Godzilla show. Godzilla show was Hanna-Barbera, right? There's a Superman show by Ruby Spears. He also worked in the early 80s with the great Kurt Swan on regular art duties on Superman and action comics.
0: Whoa. No idea who that is?
2: Uh, Kurt Swan, like, drew Superman for a long time. Yeah, he's
3: like the guy that kind of... Set the tone for, like, the modern Superman in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, right? Perfect.
2: Gil Kane and Marv Wolfman revised Brainiac, a Superman villain in 1984. They make him badass. Uh, In the 90s, he illustrated a little miniseries adaptation of Jurassic Park for top comics, as well as working for Malibu, Awesome Entertainment, and more Superman for DC. His last published comics art during his lifetime was a one-page illustration in Dark Horse's Sin City, Helen Back, number four, in 1999. I remember copying Gil Kane a lot. I come a lot of these guys when I was younger, a lot. But everyone did. There's a
3: lot of uh, stuff that um, you should mention about um, his style. Like, uh, number one, it it all depended on who was inking the guy. If he inked himself, which he did a lot, you would get the signature Gil Kane look, which is thin lines, very thin lines. And, like, uh, like this kind of, like, single hatch, which is, like, one stroke, like, that repeats. Yeah. It doesn't cross over. It's always kind of, like, a single stroke. Oh, yeah. And uh, you see that. And he does that very well. That's very hard to do, by the way, uh, the, using the single stroke hatch. His muscles forms are very organic. Yes. He didn't, like, he would hint at a muscle. He wouldn't. There's some guys that draw, like, every six-pack cube, like, as, like, like a chiclet. Right. Like he would kind of like just give the indication of some muscle there yep. Yep. and it would be just enough. Yeah. So it was a very realistic approach to skin and how it, how skin works over muscle and stuff like that.
2: I mean, he was the guy that I learned the shorthand of here's how you suggest muscle when you're drawing. Like I copied his Spider-Man so much that you learned how to suggest the different muscles on the body. Just by his shorthand. His his form was amazing. Like you feel the solid form of his figures. People compare him with the master anatomist Burn Hogarth, who everyone has a burn, like if you are drawing a yeah, dynamic
3: anatomy book, yeah, yeah.
2: Everyone has a Burn Hogarth book. But his structures, his planes, like when he was doing Green Lantern, his planes and his visualizations of the green light becoming things, like he was a master of structure and buildings and, and uh, just things, like it's just amazing, amazing form.
3: Yeah, he definitely deserves to be mentioned for a, 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 like just a lot of the classic looks of, of that time.
2: Yeah. Gil Kane named to both Eisner Ward Hall of Fame and Harvey Ward, Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1997. There is a great Facebook page that I will put a link in the show notes. com slash 30 or Comic Book Artist 2. They post pages of his work with uh, thoughts of what, and, and, and
0: point out different parts of his Can life. Can I point out something? Yeah. So his use of diagonals. Yeah. For me, when I see the use of diagonals, it creates like a motion in yeah. the comic. Is that is that the intent? Yeah,
2: yeah. You oh, want to keep the eye moving. and Oh, uh,
0: well, it seems like the comic is almost moving, but it's not, obviously. It's uh, just, and you know, that is the intention. That's the intent. Of that, that
3: is the intention. And it's- you're not going to – you're always going to find him uh, throwing things off balance too. Yeah. Like there's yeah. never just somebody just standing there. If they are standing, they're standing contrapposto or in, in a way where they're kind of moving. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm noticing this. So,
2: like yeah. amazing gesture and movement, but – you're absolutely that stuff right. That
3: real artists can pick up on like the layman doesn't really notice that that's going on. But if you put that up to like a Rob Leefield comic, then you're gonna see the difference. Oh
2: yeah. <laughs> oh and yeah. yeah. Leefield
0: is flat <laughs> as fuck.
2: everyone is
3: old, I mean,
0: a Leefield comic. everyone's just kind of posing, right? Yes, yes. This all is like the motion. time. This is
2: actual visual storytelling a la storyboards for the greatest movies. We're going to need to do a show where we just bash Rob Liefeld. Oh, boy. We could do a <laughs> comic book artistry hate show.
3: Awesome. <laughs> no,
0: but i I do this. that.
3: Uh, I could do that all day.
2: Yeah, <laughs> really good. That's a uh, fucking comic book artist uh, snob. Should we that move on we are? to the next
3: guy? Yet,
0: next
2: or do you guy. No, that's hard. good. We're good. We got to move on.
0: All right. So at number nine, you got this dude Alex. Is it Toth? Uh, Toth. I think he's pronounced Toth. Alex Toth. Nice Toth. Well, no, it's it's Toth. Toth. And then he's a it's what a, is he? A modern age. He also oh, works across a couple ages.
2: Yeah, across okay. a lot of ages. A lot of these guys worked. Except for the last one, worked throughout uh, uh, for a long time.
0: So what would Gil Kane, before we get into it, Gil Kane, his look is what, more Silver age
2: Yeah, definitely okay. informed the Silver Age of the, the beginning of the 70s. Oh. I mean, but he ended the Silver Age also with okay. the uh, the death of Gwen Stacy.
0: Right, right. Okay, so then now we got Alex Toth.
2: Alex Toth is a master storyteller that a lot of readers don't know about also. I've never I'm heard sure. of this guy. Yes. I heard
3: of Gil Kane. I've never heard of this guy. He, well, the, th- yeah. the thing is, if you... Think about Alex Toth. You're gonna you're gonna know him from cartoons more than you know him from comics. Uh, yes,
2: okay. and I will explain. you will get to that. Yeah, yeah, and so, I'll explain why
0: he was born June 25th, 1928, and died in May 27th, 2006. That is correct. So he's no longer with us. He's
2: well. also no longer with us. Well, that sucks. Uh, he was 77 when he died. So, like I said, even though he worked in comics for decades. And designed, he pretty much designed Hanna Barbera's classic animation lineup. Most readers yeah. don't know, possibly the best and one of the most influential comics artists, you know, of all time. He was a giant, basically regarded as a giant of 20th century cartoon design. Absolutely, yes. And the reason a lot of people don't know him because of the 60 years he worked in comics. He worked on not many superhero titles. Okay. He did anything but. He liked the pulp stories, the war stories, the horror stories, the westerns, the romances, racing stories, and adventure stories. And a lot of his books have been out of print for a while also, which kind of – it makes it hard for people to discover this great artist. But like all these guys, another trend you'll notice is he started very young. As a teenager, he enrolled in the School of Industrial Art, sold his first freelance piece of art at 15. Whoa! You know who else went to the School of Industrial Art? Carmine Infantino, John Romita Sr., Neil Adams, a couple guys you may have heard of them. I've heard of those I've heard of all of them. Uh, So his first job he got by Steve Douglas of Famous Funnies. Another guy on the last show, John Romita Sr., also worked for Famous Funnies. I'm going to take a little bit of a jock and nerd nerd (laughs) sidebar here because what I learned was historians actually regard Famous Funnies as the very first true American comic book. It started in the 30s.
0: Why is that the first true American comedy?
2: It was the first time that they took all these strips and put it into like a book magazine. Oh, so it used to be just newspaper
0: strips. Yes. What yeah, I think newspaper
3: strips precede comic books.
2: Yes.
0: Oh, okay.
2: But this is the first true American comic book form, Famous Funnies, and lots of these dudes uh, worked for Famous Funnies, lost a lot of careers. So his true – Alex Toth actually really wanted to do newspaper strips, but he kind of felt the medium was dying, and he's like, all right, uh, let me do comic books. In 47, Toth gets a job with National slash DC Comics and drew the Golden Age versions of Flash, Dr. Midnight, and the Adam Green Lantern Black Canary.
0: So he put that hat on Flash, Jay Garrick.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't know if he came up with the design, but he did put the. the he probably drew it. Uh, that, that he drew metal a little
0: hat with a lightning bolt on. He
2: it? drew really sexy black canary also back in the. Did he? 40s, that is yeah.
3: correct. Yes. Yes a lot of stuff like Frank Miller and all that stuff a yeah. lot of that sin city shit yeah a lot yeah. i think that alex toth was a uh, big influence
0: that's cool that you say that cuz i'm looking at some of his art Look in the black and whites and all this this is very um, that's what it reminded me of the he was hard, high, yeah. Contrast, yeah.
2: high contrast high contrast and sexy women you're absolutely right rug boy
3: yeah i mean that's just that's just uh something i heard
0: so high contrast meaning like heavy black and then white like it's a, ne-
3: so yeah. he he develops – it's like a simplified
2: realism, his yeah use of blacks and negative space to give the form. This is, starts to become his style. He okay. starts to shine really when he draws Johnny Thunder in All-Star Western. Like he was really good at the Western. In the early 50s, he leaves New York and DC, moves to California, draws for standard comics, just uproots his life. He's like, fuck it, I'm out of here. Let's go do this over here. Mm-hmm. He's mostly doing crime, war and romance titles. In fifty four, he's drafted in the army, stationed in Tokyo, Japan. Godzilla. Yeah. Oh, I don't have my uh, I don't have my roar anymore. But in Japan, he starts uh, for the army newspaper. He starts a great strip called John Fury in Japan. Okay. This this strip, if we'll, I'll put a pages to the show notes, it's the design of this strip is like years ahead of its time. It's amazing. It's such good storytelling. This is where he really loves to. Uh, he gets his play, airplane battles and drawing airplane fights. The guy's a master at that. He gets really good at that in this time. He returns to the states in the mid fifties, works for Dell Comics, where he creates possibly his best regarded best work in Zorro.
0: Dun, dun, dun. He creates Zorro. Well, he draws, draws Zorro. Zorro. okay. Z- His Zorro's Zorro work.
2: Old. Yeah, and Zorro, old as fuck, I was gonna You know, Zorro, while he didn't do superhero books, uh, Zorro is a superhero.
0: That, that does look like Frank Miller. Doesn't
2: that yeah. Zorro cover classic Alex talk?
3: Yeah.
2: Zorro book? His, his 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 artwork is striking and it is very it's just enough to give the suggestion of everything man.
3: But he also does what Frank Miller does, what Frank Miller copied is that he simplifies everything. Yes, Like he he, he can do very well rendered stuff that looks realistic, but then he has a visual language that he can simplify. It's called designed realism where he's using minimal amount of lines yeah. and uh he's like simplifying the structures and make it and actually flattening things out. That is and, uh,
2: another, uh, this is another trend we're going to see moving forward. A lot of these guys, as they work on, they refine their stuff. They unclutter it. It gets cleaner and crisper. You know, the whole idea in drawing is like use only what you need, not too much, which is why it got a little crazy in the 90s with your McFarlins and your refills, who are just adding dashes and little uh, marks. Kind of for no reason, just right. for yeah, style. Yeah, for the
3: sake of speed too. Like, yeah. why do you want to draw all that yeah. shit?
2: You just make it more work for yourself when you can literally get the same expression and motion with a couple of perfect strokes. Perfect the exactly. stroke. Exactly. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, the this Zorro cover,
0: this guy has half his face. Just there's no, there's nothing there. It's cl- black. But you, look how awesome! Is you, that? He just literally just, as, just drew a nose, eye, and half a mouth. But it, it tells. Look at yeah. the story
3: it's telling you with that. It's right. amazing. Do you think that he was an influence of Dave Mazzucchelli as well? Oh,
2: I very Mazz- I Yeah. Now that you mention all this, like all the guys I loved growing up
3: are 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 Alex Toth influenced heavily. Yeah. So if you like Dave where would be another guy uh, Darwin Cook maybe Magnolia too. Mignola, all these guys Darwin Cook, absolutely, yeah. Darwin Cook is a retro style. Toad was the guy that was doing that shit long ago.
2: People, if you want, Pick Up Zorro, this is the the Citizen Kane of graphic adventure storytelling. It is pitch perfect. This is where you learn how to tell a story in images, perfectly paced.
3: Another thing about him is that his simplifying things makes him the perfect guy to go into animation because animation (laughs) is all about the simplification of stuff. So you're going to see him gravitate that way.
2: That is a great segue, because Alex Toth did not stay long on any titles. Another reason why it's hard to find some of his work nowadays. He didn't stay in one place for long. He returns to DC in the early 60s, but this is the time when these war, romance, and crime comics are becoming less popular. Nobody's buying them. He's like, all right, let me try animation. Toth works for Hanna-Barbera, and the work he the designs he does there becomes iconic. And this is where he extends his cultural reach as an artist into the main street. He created character designs, backgrounds, layouts, storyboards for Johnny Quest, the Herculoids, Space Ghost, and Super Friends. Oh shit. Yeah. And the- you had those
3: bed sheets? That was Alex Toth's drawings.
2: So, Anthony, you've seen Space Coast, Johnny Quest, I have and seen, Super Friends. I have super Friends, Johnny Quest. That and... look of Super Friends, that's all Alex Toth. Huh. That's where – and yeah. nobody knows. That's the thing is with cartoons. You don't know who designed
0: this shit. And that's very – to me, that it looks very simple. yeah, Simple designs. Like
2: Just yeah. like Rugboy said, you
3: yeah. got to s- strip it all down and make it sleek so it, it moves. But, but the consistency, if you look at that Robin that we're looking at yeah. that's in the show notes. Yeah. You're going to see he turns that figure all the way around. Yeah. And for a comic book artist to nail it like that, yeah. the, with like minimum lines. It's amazing. That's amazing. Like, okay. to, I mean, because usually as an artist, you want to put more lines in there to try and but like the back of the head. Look at that one. Right. This
2: model sheet. You're right. It's there, crazy. There is not one unnecessary. That back line. of the
3: head is literally just a
0: circle, a rectangle. And but you that's
2: feel this. Sh- I mean, like it's just but it
3: flows th- with the rest right. of it. Yeah, Exactly.
2: There's not one unnecessary mark on any of that on this model sheet.
3: Like I would have been tempted to put a part in the hair, something, to like to, yeah, something, you know? yeah, a
2: colic, yeah, no. or just yeah. something to, to 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 define the shape more. But he's like, nah, I just need a little bump here, and you can tell us that,
3: and that's it.
2: Yeah. So he returns to comics, and from the late '60s through the '80s, he works for DC and Warren Publishing. This is some of this work is like the best comics of his career. Warren Publishing publishes. You may have heard Eerie creepy the rook these are like these horror comics okay uh, and a lot of these dudes also worked for war and a lot of these dudes also did stories for eerie and creepy he even illustrated a hot wheels comic book tie-in to the animated show that was based on the toys <laughs> try finding that i bet that's popular the the hot fight.
0: wheels comic book.
2: yeah try finding the alex toth hot wheels comic book i bet it's super valuable i don't think they printed a lot of those so it, it has been noted about Alex Toth that while most artists they re- reach a creative peak, they okay. get better, and then the, at, at some point they hit that and they kind of mature and they kind of either stay there or they decline.
0: It's like anything, like, athlete, Just like athletes, anything. you hit your prime and then yes. you're done.
2: Alex Toth is kind of a superhuman because he kept evolving. He literally never hit his peak. Everything he did got better and better and better.
3: Because hmm. he's a he was a perfectionist. Yes. And he was going for something.
2: Yeah. And he, was- he, he had a reputation of being hard to work with a little bit. He was very brutal, straightforward person, unafraid to speak his mind. So you could see how this kind of personality would clash with people. So sometimes he would rewrite scripts and just send them back. But every time he did this, it would have been an improvement. It would always been an improvement, but he was so surly.
0: Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> yeah. kind of a cock.
2: This guy, yeah, what he did is he took these boring-ass romance titles. And made them amazing and fluid and gave emotion. You know, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, like a lot of critics think, and I kind of agree, that most of his talent was wasted on these shitty romance books.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of this guy, and I'm not you know deep in the game like you guys are, but uh, you know Ditko, Kane, his yeah, heard of yeah. I mean, his
2: influence in comics is clear, but he just didn't like to do superheroes. But then what he was doing was kind of like just not good. He just, he made it better. He polished those romance turds.
3: I think that like, as I said, all the great artists have an influence and he was one of the influence. He he was the guy that, you know, was the predecessor to like Mazzuccelli and all those guys. Yeah. So they learned from him. And then when they talk about how they learned, like, you know, storytelling and spotting blacks and simplifying things and all that stuff, yep. they always this go to. Toth. Yeah. So you got to know him. Like he's like the blues, yep. you know, he's yeah. Like, He is the jazz. Yep.
2: He's jazz standards. He is the blues. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, so everything kind of goes back to them. Like we all like, uh, you know, rock and roll music and stuff, but we don't necessarily know about all these blues guys that were like the influence for Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. Uh, That's a good analogy.
2: It's absolutely the same thing.
3: Yeah. So this is kind of like. It all goes back to a nexus, and then he's one of those nexuses. It's
2: amazing, amazing storytelling. His final work for DC was the cover for Batman Black and White, number four, in 1996. The man died as he lived. He literally died at his drawing board. And oh, if you look at that image, drawing.
3: it's the most simple Batman image. There's hardly, there's nothing there that Let's doesn't need up. to be there. Mm-hmm. It's just like a splash of like black with a gray and then, and then the boots are are like what what shows you where the legs are. <laughs> oh Number yeah. Four. Oh, it's gorgeous, dude. That is, that dude. is, very simple, that yeah. is beautiful. But that's art. That's, art. that's yeah. like simple art that says right. it all. There's like no there.
2: lines, but the form and the motion. It's all there. That it's does amazing. remind me of oh, like
0: okay. 70s, 80s superhero TV shows. 70s yeah. TV shows where it's very, very simple. Yeah, simple.
2: So this uh, journalist Tom Spurgeon of ComicsReporter.com. He uh, wrote, I will link this, he wrote this great piece actually on the day Alex Toth died in 2006. And he uh, kind of sums up, he says, Toth is better remembered for an approach to work. Perfectly spotted blacks, supple line work that can create an entire visual world in fewer marks on the page than anyone would ever believe. And a visually sophisticated approach to storytelling that relied as much on shadow and hints of continuity across panels as it did on any effect borrowed from film. There you go. Check out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, IDW just announced this uh, collection, hardcover collection of Bravo for Adventure, which uh, a lot of people consider Toth's last greatest comic book. Uh, They're putting out this June. They put out a hundred-page hardcover, uh, and it's a pulpy adventure story about a pilot named Jesse Bravo. So, if you like adventure pilot stories, it was originally written for a French publisher. It was never printed. This is the first time all these – this Bravo for Adventure story has been collected. It's going to have unfinished works and pencil roughs and drafts. And if you guys like this kind of pulpy uh, story style, definitely check it out. I will have a link in the show notes. So
0: he does use – I mean he uses a ton of black. It's, yeah. like, it's like shadow and like yeah. creates the – you can almost you have to fill it in with your mind. What else? What was there? Right? And
2: that's what you yeah. want. Like uh the. It, I mean,
0: even go up, even on that yeah. cover. Yeah, there's you know, it's yeah. it's color, but there's a ton yeah. of black on there. It's so it's so like
2: Citizen Kane. Shadowy. It's so perfectly it's perfectly composed shots, man.
0: Yeah, it's, like, it's great. It's like he's standing. It's it makes it look like he's standing right underneath that plane yep. or whatever. Yep.
2: Yeah, and like you could this this guy's influence is everywhere. You can clearly trace this to to a lot of guys we love. Have you guys
0: ever tried drawing like this?
3: Yeah, I, mean, I do all the time. I, I
2: yeah, and I one of my strengths is actually I love drawing in black and white and using uh, big black shapes and 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 shadows like this.
3: Cause you
0: use, so you're using the black almost as a. Like the shape, instead of filling it in with... Yeah, stuff, you, just... you
2: want to see it as a shape you're drawing with the negative space almost, yeah. you know? The negative space
0: being, is that black? Being the white. White, okay. You
2: know? Uh, the, you know, the the rule is your eye is drawn to wherever black and white touch. This is contrast. Right. Wherever a light hits a dark, and you could use that to lead the viewer around.
3: A lot of people tried to do this shit. Yeah. And it was like the, uh, the adage was, when in doubt, black it out. Yeah. yeah. And then some people can't... You can't do that all the time. You Again, have to yeah. know how to do it. Yes,
2: it, it like, became another gimmicky thing where people are like, oh, I'll just put black everywhere, blah blah blah. No, no, you have to know how to use it. Just like Rock Boy said, you right. got to know how to – because you can overdo it and like it doesn't make any sense.
3: I was gonna and say no because you got to know go the the exact spot where to put it. You have to pose it right. Yeah, you know, you have to light it right. Like it, yeah. you can't just do it willy nilly, blacking you, shit out yeah. and be like, I'm Alex Toth. Yeah. Like fuck you.
0: <laughs> I was going to say I'm a drawn – I noticed I'm drawn to black and white because I can't stop staring at your beard all the Yeah, day, see?
2: That's know? why. It's uh, – <laughs> Oh, shit. That's <laughs> like <a> nerd. But, <laughs> uh, so you nerd. Alex Toth drew you the beard. Toth <laughs> is uh, – I model my beard after Alex Toth. I mean he's literally drawing with light. You know That's like yeah, if you yeah. were lighting a shot in a movie, you're drawing with light. This is who you are. It looks look
0: like that. like as if – there was a light shining just partly on someone's face yeah. as of want, the shadow.
3: Yeah, It really works well. I you like want to know what else I think that this, um, like if you look at some of his drawings, there's like a couple of drawings of like the justice league, like hanging out and whatever. Yeah. I see, you know, the oh, justice league cartoon there.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, like they must've used. Oh yeah. And like, uh, I think that the guy who designs all this shit for uh, the WB, What's his name? Bruce Tim. Bruce Timm, yeah. Tim, yeah. I think he's a huge Toth fan as well. Right here. Look at this.
0: So, when I was going through the show notes and looking at some of this art before the show getting prepped, Alex Toth, I thought he was a modern artist. Right. I, I, when I look at the black and whites like this, I think of it as a, being a modern way of drawing things. Yep. So I guess he has a huge influence on I
2: mean, the uh, man was ahead, ahead of his ahead of time. Of his time yeah. yeah. The man was ahead of his time. And you're right. It's still like it holds up to this day. Yeah,
3: that Absolutely. That works really well. All right, I think we blew him enough.
2: All right, we blew him enough. Moving on.
3: I'll beat
2: him. Um. Okay, nerd. Okay, that music was a clue about our next artist, number eight.
0: Number eight, Steve Ditko. This yes. is the name I recognize. Dun,
2: dun, dun. Everybody oh, know, should know Steve Ditko. Right away, let's just get it out of the way. Steve Ditko, Stanley, created Spider-Man. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> kind of nerd. I was not expecting that. But that is the correct, I surprised you. That was the correct response to Give <laughs> the guy the gong. Next time it's a bad joke, but you better jump on that too.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm gonna be doing <laughs> that. Was
0: that was actually that was awesome. So this guy, born in uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, November second, yep. nineteen twenty-seven. He's still alive, huh?
2: Steve, here's the thing about Steve Ditko. He's still alive. He's yeah. eighty-seven now. This is how weird it gets. Literally, the co-creator of Spider-Man is walking around Manhattan, walking in front of stands that sell Spider-Man shit, and nobody
0: recognizes. What do you mean? Today? Yes, oh, today. Right
2: today. now, yeah. as we speak, the man is still working out of his midtown Manhattan studio.
0: He's still drawing. Yes. Really? Oh, was he
3: drawing this.
2: though? Oh, uh, whoa! Just wait. We'll get to that. Big
0: veiny penises.
2: Yeah. Uh, n- well, that's my.
0: No, that's that's you, rug boy. My,
2: yeah. I'm going to preface this by the end of this. I'm Steve Dick.
0: <laughs> oh, shit. I lined you up on that one.
2: The man yeah. has kind of become a, a quirky genius in his uh, later years.
0: Quirky beanie. Was that crazy? A little weird. Okay,
1: yeah.
2: We'll get to that. He Here's the deal with ITCO. He was inducted into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame 1990, Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame 1994. Now, he's kind of like the Howard Hughes of comic book artists. He hasn't given a formal interview since the 60s. There are a few public photographs of him available. He'd never married. He'd never had kids. He was never close to... With anyone he worked with, people who worked with him, Stan Lee himself was like, I felt like I never really knew.
0: Steve he's King. hanging out with Tupac and Biggie on that island, right? Uh, no, he's
2: uh, he's still alive. <laughs> he's still no, they're alive too. <laughs> oh yeah, they're all and Michael Jackson, <laughs> Michael yeah, Jackson all, and Jimi
0: Hendrix. They're all hanging out. Everyone from the Twenty Seven yep. Club is hanging out yep. with Steve Ditko right now on that island. Yep. Uh Ditko, <laughs> Interesting thought. <laughs> oh, shit.
2: Ditko, like all, all these guys, inspired when he was very young. He was actually inspired by his father's love of newspaper comic strips, particularly one by Hal Foster called Prince Valiant. Lots of guys loved Prince Valiant and were inspired by Prince Valiant. Absolutely. All, also, Batman had been created in the 40s, and that caught his eye. And Will Eisner's The Spirit would actually appear Why as... Why did
0: this catch his eye, though?
2: Well, because it's Batman, and he was already But into, in the 40s, though,
0: they were like, is that Batman? That's Batman. Like, is that, no, I'm is saying
2: Batman was created, so he's like, what's this? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. as
0: a kid, you see Batman,
2: and you just... You shit ba- when wow. you're reading uh, fucking
0: He soiled soiled himself. Okay, keep going.
2: And The Spirit. It was another great adventure. uh, And The Spirit was actually in the newspaper. It was released as like inserts. It wasn't even a comic book. It was like its own insert in newspapers. Uh, Steve Ditko was always good with his hands. This is kind of interesting. Not in that way, you might think. Oh, shit. (laughs) In high school, he was part of the group that crafted wooden models of German airplanes, for uh, w- uh, World War II aircraft spotters as part of the civilian war effort. Okay. So the guys who were looking through the binoculars be I mean, like, that's a German plane. He made the model planes that they would recognize to be able to properly identify, blow that plane up, it's German. Hmm.
3: It was pretty that's crazy. That's pretty cool. I didn't even know he did that. Wow. Yeah. Wait, I, that, he, they, he had they, a part in the war. They would make like a model plane and they'd be like, look, this is what it looks like. And then if you see that shit, tell them to shoot it down. Isn't that
2: crazy? Because they wouldn't have had photos of these planes. They would have gotten schematics maybe through uh, espionage and got, but they wouldn't have had a picture yeah. because you would have hid that if you were the Germans. You're so like, don't hard let to
3: take a picture of something that's moving.
2: At yeah, that and it's hard. Yeah, to, and it's hard yeah. to, the
0: picture probably it takes a little longer to take a picture, and planes are moving. Yeah, and this really is the really early forties, yeah.
2: so they had to make models, which is wild. So he enlists in the army, in 1945, serves in post-war Germany, where he draws for the army paper. Also, just like our last guy, Alex Toth. Heard of that Ooh. name before, Alex, Alex Toth. After okay. the military. Steve learns that his idol, Batman artist Jerry Robinson, was teaching at the Cartoonist and Illustrator School, which later becomes the School of Visual Arts. Very famous, SVA. Oh, yeah, I've heard of day. That, yeah. It's in New York and he moves there in 1950. Under the GI Bill, he enrolls in the school. He wants to work with Jerry Robinson. Steve – Jerry Robinson says Steve is a hard worker. Steve is there for two years, four or five days a week, five hours a day, drawing. Working. Is that a lot? Because that's a, Well, I think he had like a job
0: also. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say a hard work, 40-hour work week, eight hours a day. I mean, this is a school. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But drawing five yeah. hours a day. Okay. Jerry invites
2: artists and editors to come speak to his class. A lot of schools do this, even now, even our school did. And then he invites editor of then Atlas Comic, one person named Stanley. Dun, dun, dun. this is oh, this is where it's believed that Stanley first saw Steve Ditko's artwork. This they, is they where had a little moment. This is where the moment happened. So Steve begins professionally illustrating comics in fifty three ends up working at huge Joe Simon Jack Kirby shop. Like Simon and Kirby had already created Captain America. They were running a very popular oh, yeah, yeah, okay. drawing studio where they were cranking out all sorts of comic books. They, so Steve Ditko starts inking backgrounds. Steve Ditko starts a long, intermittent relationship with Charlton Comics in 1954, which lasts until 1986. During this time, he also creates Captain Atom, which uh, goes to DC. Charlton Comics, you're going to hear a lot. A lot of these guys work for Charlton they were kind of notorious for maybe not paying the most treating their artists the best. But <laughs>
0: there was always <laughs> they work. Were dicks. There was always work
2: there. They needed people. It's like yes. a running
0: theme dicks.
2: Oh, oh, just wait. This okay. is a running theme with all this industry. More um, ways than one. The birth of this industry was full of sleazebags bags and, and dicks and okay. that people had to navigate around and got frustrated with. So this is where he starts drawing for Atlas Comics, Steve Ditko, which is the precursor to Marvel. With the journey into mystery number thirty three in nineteen fifty six, he contributes to strange tales, amazing adventures, strange worlds, tales of suspense, tales to astonish. Basically, every every book that launched all these superheroes. Tales
0: Absolutely. to astonish, Ant Man.
2: Yeah. So we've referenced these books a lot. These books, they all had the similar format, right? They would open up with like a Jack Kirby monster story. They would uh, it would usually have like a twist ending, or it'd be like a sci fi story, then. Uh, that would be the middle. There'd be like a twist, tent, a, a story in the middle. And then at the end, they would put a little surreal short from uh, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Okay. So they kind of follow these formats. The Lee and Ditko stories got so popular that they became the feature story in Amazing Adventures, starting with issue seven in 1961. The title was renamed Amazing Adult Fantasy to kind of, they're trying to pull in an adult crowd, a Amazing mature adult crowd. Adult Fantasy? Yeah, it sounds really. <laughs> new it more. sounds like porn. Yeah, it does. But the, the tagline. like.
3: Amazing adult fantasy. It sounds yeah, like you are trying to like, sell <laughs> the barbarian yes. and having sex with she- Sheena the She devil it,
2: it was a different time, people. That's not what it meant back then. Uh, the magazine had a tagline the magazine that respects your intelligence. They were trying to set this. You know, a higher bar. should be
0: the magazine that respects your libido. Uh,
2: that respects your uh, – These stories that Stanley would come up with for these uh, things, they were very weird, oddball ideas he would come up with when other books had a couple of pages to fill and they were scrambling. They were short five-page stories with O. Henry-type twist endings. Do you know what that is? No, what does that mean? O. Henry was a writer who was known for his surprise ending. Okay. Kind of like the original Quentin Tarantino sort of when thing. When you saw O. Henry. I, I thought he was, was a candy, a candy
3: bar. Candy bar. <laughs> He's the first person.
2: nerd. <laughs> <I> Jinx. <laughs> o. Henry was the first candy bar to ever write a story. No, that's, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> the, now, now, at this time, this is where this Marvel method of writer-artist collaboration starts to evolve. Starts so this to, is when you brought up the Marvel yes. method earlier, too. This yeah. is where it starts with Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Lee said... All I had to do is give Steve a one-line description of the plot. One line. And he'd be off and running. He'd take those skeleton outlines I had given him, turn them into classic little works of art that ended up being far cooler than I had any right to expect. So Literally, Ditko
3: really did a lot of the heavy lifting. Fucking
2: Stanley. <laughs> a lot of the guys, Ditko, Kirby, Wally wood they did all the heavy lifting.
0: We never saw Ditko in a, in a Spider-Man film, huh? Like a cameo.
2: Uh, not, no, he's, he doesn't he doesn't have anything to do with it. Stan Lee gets all And I'll get to the that. The he's creme. talked about it. He's like a recluse. He's a recluse, dude. He's like a hermit. Yeah. He doesn't have anything to do with it. So in 1962, Stan Lee has an idea.
0: That's a dog barking, I think,
2: in the background. Yeah, it's not my dog. No. It's not Joplin.
3: Okay. Just wanted to point that uh, out. I Acknowledge think,
2: I, that. Rugby, are you fighting for some scraps on, <laughs> on the streets?
3: I don't know. I think A dog just showed up and started barking at my <laughs> door. I, listen, I
2: told you not to put the sandwiches in your pocket. <laughs>
3: Maybe it's... I don't know. Oh, Maybe shit. I got something in the garbage. I I you know. got that pocket pastrami in I, there. That's I not- think
2: the townspeople are coming for him with pitchforks <laughs> and torches.
3: That could be it. Look, <laughs> like, if something happens, you hear somebody busting the door down, just... We'll know, just, just keep going and feet. ignore it. Yeah, ignore it. Okay. <laughs> uh, in
2: 1962, Stan Lee has an idea. He wants to make an ordinary teen superhero called Spider-Man. But he goes to Jack Kirby first. For sketches, hmm. okay. He goes, Jack. I got this idea. Uh, what do you got? Jack tells him about kind of a character he used to have a fo- uh, or an idea he had in the past that he created in the fifties called Spider-Man, and it was uh, loosely it was an idea about an orphan boy who finds a magic ring that gives him power. Green Lantern, uh, sort of,
0: <laughs> a little bit. Why would you call that guy Spider-Man? I don't know. Okay, keep going. <laughs> it
2: was loosely based on it. Uh, Kirby does a few pages for Stan. Stan hates it. Yeah. It wasn't what he was going for. Kirby, you know Kirby. He's into big, heroic characters. Uh, Stan felt it was too heroic. It's, he wanted a meek, shy teenager. There's also some talk of, like, this guy had a web gun, and, like, Jack didn't really get it. Okay, Jack goes, you know what? Go talk to Steve Ditko. Lee goes to Ditko. Check this out. Not only does Steve Ditko design the costume for Spider-Man, he invents the web shooter. He makes the decision to have – for Peter to have a full face mask.
3: To That's an awesome idea. Yes,
2: to obviously hide his boyish looks. I don't think uh, that had been done before. Spider-Man debuts <laughs> – wait a minute. Hold on. I heard something.
3: <laughs> no, not <don't>
2: ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. You better uh, hand sanitize before you touch the microphone. Uh, you, <laughs> you just it's totally derailed
3: Imran. Listen, I had a lot to deal with. I got rid of the dogs. All right. That All right. was the problem. And I, the only way, way I could was to pee. To mark his territory. establish dominance. Okay, that's a good idea. He yeah, I, think he needed, I just pissed on a dog. Yeah, I think you needed to mark
2: your territory. And I was uh, like,
3: listen, this is my area.
2: <laughs> Bang off. So, Sp- Spider Man, back to Spider Man. Spider Man <laughs> debuts in the final issue. Of that Amazing Adult Fantasy, which they rename to Amazing Fantasy, number 15, August 1962.
0: I think that's a good
2: choice, that really It wasn't the last issue. They're like, <laughs> whatever. Fuck it. Take it down the adult. Maybe it'll help. <laughs> Stanley and Ditko go on to create Dr. Octopus in issue three of Amazing Spider-Man. Stan Man in issue number four. The Lizard in issue number six. Electro in issue number nine. The Green Goblin in issue number 14.
3: Wow. Anything that you like about Spider-Man is, you know, Steve Ditko was part of that. Uh,
2: We have another bit of a Bob Kane, Bill Finger issue here, kind of. Steve wants to ground the strip in reality. He's really into telling tales about Peter Parker being a teen and awkward and what it's like to be a teenager. Lee is not really looking in the same direction. What is Lee looking to do? He wants big, fantastical, crazy shit, obviously.
3: Crazy stories. And crazy
2: stuff stories, like. big explosions, yeah. exaggerations, sell some books.
0: Okay.
3: Right? Absolutely. He's like, keep it simple, keep it fun, you know?
2: Yeah. Don't overthink it. However, Stan Lee is so busy being writer-editor for the whole company, working on several titles, he gives more and more story control to Steve Ditko. And he does this with other artists uh, also. By issue 10, Ditko is plotting the whole story. With like I said, Stan coming right. in at the end, just putting in the letters and word balloons after the page has been drawn, without even seeing like what the page was going to be. Excelsior! With crazy. With giving That's- him one line of plot to go on. Yeah, Excelsior! Exactly. Upset. Upset. True believers. But this is how they're cranking out books at the time, and yeah. and and giving the public more.
0: I could see why this would cause a little bit of contention in terms of creativity.
2: Ditko focused so much on. The character of Peter Parker, not Spider-Man, that in issue number 18, it almost features no costume Spider-Man.
0: Well, this is what, as a casual comic book reader, this is what makes Spider-Man appealing today.
2: But it was also never done at the time where in the superhero book, you didn't see the superhero.
0: Well, I mean, if you would have made it like where he's this over-the-top just hero, he would have just fell in with the crowd.
2: Right. It would have been just like everything else. I mean, uh, Stan Lee had a definite uh, direction and idea. By issue 25 – Stan finally gives him credit for co-writing the book, and the two are no longer speaking to each other, literally. They are not communicating. They're still working on the book, but they're not talking to each other.
3: Hmm. Because they're of- just, yeah. They're just working with each other. They're just-
2: He's sending him the page, he's studying back the art. Just don't leave me alone. Don't talk. Uh, the tensions get bad. Their most celebrated issue in this run, listener, one to check out if you can find a reprint or find it online: Amazing Spider-Man number 33.
0: Okay, you've you've got this pulled up. So let me just take before you go back this more is into the, the cover history, of number thirty-three. More and more into Steve Ditko and all the background. Um, just looking at this cover, what what makes this guy's art unique?
3: Steve Ditko wasn't your typical guy, like your typical artist. He has a unique look. You know, he wasn't doing these big muscular like guys all the time. Like he made Spider-Man wiry and skinny, mm-hmm. and then as the comic progressed and maybe Mm. peter got older he started fleshing him out a little bit more and uh the way he drew the webbing was very kind of like um not so geometric it was a little bit more random yeah okay like there's like like john ramita like every line that he drew on spider-man's webbing was completely planned out like he had a system yeah it was like He'd have four lines on the top of his forehead, then he'd have two, and then he'd have three, and then he'd have six, you know? So it was inconsistent. And I think that was the way he did stuff. Like, it was very, like, organic in how he drew it. Was Gil
0: Kane kind of influenced by this?
3: Yeah, there's a little bit of that single hatch going on that Gil Kane yeah. uses. Yeah, because you said he hints at
0: the muscle. Yeah, he hints at the muscles. Yeah, he you you, the you muscles said the here. same thing for Gil yeah, Kane, Yeah, so too. Gil
3: Kane came after Gil, right. Ditko, definitely. But um, Ditko was a little bit more inconsistent, which... Made his stuff like I never knew like what Spider Man was gonna look like when I opened a a, a Ditko book. Like- well, oh,
2: neither okay. did Ditko. He was fucking. He made it up. He's fucking making it up. The thing for me with Ditko is the design. Like it's hard to imagine now, but that this iconic suit, yeah, that everyone knows, yeah, he created it, yeah. Like the design of the suit, that's him. All of this thing, the web shooters, he the the, the design of the character and the essence of the character
3: informed by the artist. He I mean, You could see the evolution of it. That's what makes it interesting. You know, you just see the evolution. You could see that he was trying to kind of like r- get control of this idea of this costume. That it's one of the hardest costumes to draw, by the way. Yeah. Cause like the webbing is a fucking pain in the balls. Yeah, so
2: the webbing and the way, like the the like the the arm bar. There's a strip that connects right. up the shoulder, but it's and not so, the full arm, right? Yeah. It's only half, so you have to draw it in the way that it shows that it's wrapping around. Yeah,
0: I see that now. When he when and, you're carrying yeah. when he's carrying stuff, mm-hmm. like you see the blues, but then you have to get hints of the red wrapping around it, right? Because
2: it actually followed up to the back of the shoulder.
0: So that's a, he just made it a pain in the ass then because
3: he <laughs> well you know, cause he was doing something so sophisticated yeah. that no one would ever fucking in the right mind do it, yeah, right, but he did, and then like other artists would sit there like anybody who came after him, like Ramita or whatever. Oh, or I, I, yeah. had to try and like make sense out of it.
2: I can I can imagine like that next guy like John Amita comes in and he'd be fuck like you, fuck Steve, you really have to draw all these fucking webs on the guy I, everywhere.
0: I'm thinking of like let's say the Hulk. He's carrying something. He's holding something over his head. Yeah, it's easy because his his arms all green. Yeah, but. Spider Man, he's carrying something over his head. You've got to get, you've got to imagine like him wearing that costume, yeah. where the hints of red. You're absolutely through.
2: right. For the time, this is a very sophisticated costume to do. Like his fingertips are rings. Like this is a pain in the ass. Like he really did not make this easy for himself, an artist. But it's it's awesome. It's, so he deserves a ton
0: of credit for creating something that is very difficult to draw and obviously yeah. an iconic character. Yeah. But then you you guys I, say he's inconsistent. So is that what does that say about his art style?
3: Inconsistent in a certain way. Because I don't think that, uh, like, the way he drew the webbing was always consistent. It was changing all the time. Uh I
2: mean, I think he was still figuring it out. Right. And
3: also that there was a time where Spider-Man was completely black, uh, like, all of his, um, like, the the other part of his suit. And then they slowly started evolving it. So he was in the middle of the evolution of it. So that's why it's inconsistent, because it wasn't, like, cemented down yet. Like, um, and, The look, yeah. Yes. So you have to give him credit for that, like establishing that they, it was probably tough for him. Like if you look at Batman too, when he first came out, they, they, they slowly evolved him to the Batman with the yellow, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and the gloves and the colors were right. I mean, Batman had purple gloves for a while that were that had yeah. no like, You know, so like the, the guys that draw the character at first and, and, and you could see them wrestling with it. You're like, oh, why come Batman's ears are really big and they're really small. Right. And eventually that you get a signature look. Mm-hmm. And that remains uninterrupted for like years, and so he was the guy to kind of s- slowly get you to that Ramita yep. Spider Man, yeah, that iconic Ramita.
0: For the listener too, you bring up a good point, Spider Man. I, and I just found this out within the past month, but he was originally the costume black and blue or black and red. The costume yes. was, and then they used blue to highlight and accent things, and then eventually just transitioned over to blue. So originally, his costume had the the web wings and was black and red.
2: That is correct. And uh, and I think on this Amazing Fantasy 15, yep. yeah, you can kind of see that. You can yeah. kind of see – the, the yeah. blue is
0: actually an accent. There's a, yeah, yeah,
2: and there's a lot of black. It's uh, just a highlight. I, yeah. and I, I mean, for me, this classic cover, I, I love Amazing Fantasy 15. It's just a classic color. I mean, and imagine at the time you're a kid at 62 and you see
3: this uh, on the newsstand. You're like, what the shit is this? Yeah, who would think to draw that pose? Right, anyway? right. If going – with his arm all the way out. But it's that such a up?
2: weird pose. He's carrying someone. You would
3: think yeah. it would be up, right? Yeah. But yeah. he's going out. So it makes it seem like he's swinging with such force yep. yeah. that he's sideways. It's and he's so dynamic. And he's really and the, yeah.
2: yeah. And the camera is tilted. and like. But you just never saw
3: that before.
0: Well, also, that, I mean, with his arm out like that, that's tons of just – if. Trying to make strength. it possible. Core strength. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's very But look strong. at the
3: way the webs are drawn here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then look at the way the webs are drawn in the other panel. Very loosey goosey in, in the first difference. time.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: So, uh, as I was saying, if for the best example of this, it's Amazing Spider Man 33. Okay. It's the three final part of a three part story called If This Be My Destiny. It's hard to separate the writer from, I mean, the artist from the plot. Because these guys were so, it was both. Like, Ditko had a lot to do with this story. This, I don't remember this, it's a classic dramatic scene where Spidey, he's pinned under machinery. And just through sheer force of will and thoughts about his aunt and Uncle Ben. Oh, wow. And not uh, letting these people down and saying, I have to do this. He unpins himself in the most iconic, dramatic, full splash page like you saw at the time. And you really get a sense, like, this is the essence of Spider-Man's character that Ditko had a lot to do with in the plotting and the pacing.
3: Yeah, this kind of scene here where Spider-Man's, like, has to summon, like, all of his strength and, like, all of the pain that he has to go through to lift this thing. They've done that a few times as an homage yeah, to yep. out, throughout Spider-Man. They've always had – this is one of the things that defines Spider-Man right yep, there. Yep. Like, when he's got to fi- find the strength to go on after, like, being, like – Put up against, or, or or buried under a bunch of stuff. Yep, you know, even when the way he died in the comics, when he drowned, like he was still, you know, or or, or, or in the Ultimate Universe, right? Oh, and, yeah. Well, he got shot. He got, yeah, he got shot, but he was like, dr- he was like in the water, almost drowning. He, well, that's to try right. and Save
2: people. Yeah, he was fighting. He's always a fighter, that, and that's the thing. This is where you're like, uh, Peter Parker never gives up, right? Never quit. Like it's unbelievable. You never saw such personal, such relatable inner strength. In a comic book character.
3: We owe that to Ditko in a way.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: All of that. In a lot of ways, actually.
2: So Ditko goes on to create Doctor Strange. Oh, okay. In Strange <laughs> Tales, 110, 1963. Ditko and Stanley Lee shortly thereafter relaunch the current version of the Hulk in Tales to Astonish. Mm-hmm. Ditko is also responsible for the design of the leader, another big Hulk enemy.
0: Yep, another guy that can be considered the arch enemy. Yes.
2: Steve Ditko pencils the Iron Man feature in a couple of issues in 1964, the issues that debut Iron Man's red and gold armor. Oh. But it's <laughs> up for debate and dispute who actually created the design, whether it was him or Jack Kirby. But he drew it first. Okay. So what I found out is that Ditko's Doctor Strange artwork is equally acclaimed as his work on Spider-Man because it was very trippy. <laughs> Doctor Strange got trippy as fuck f- under
0: Steve Ditko. I mean, that costume alone is very is very different. Very yes. weird. I mean, it's like horns coming out of his his cape. Yeah, yeah,
2: you know? yeah. The, ba- the the little back, uh, the back the collar. Flap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he had mystical landscapes, psychedel- psychedelic visuals. Uh, college kids at the time they were convinced these people were on mushrooms that were doing the book. I mean, <laughs>
3: Probably. I was gonna say no. Maybe.
2: Ditko says that nobody was on drugs. Really? Yeah, he's like I don't. I wasn't, and as far as I know, the writers weren't either. But they were just amazingly creative. Uh, this guy, they got they reached their ultimate peak of abstract. Stanley and Steve Ditko during a seventeen issue story arc in Strange Tales in nineteen sixty three and sixty four that introduced this cosmic character Eternity. This guy, and I will put a, a photo of this in the show notes. This guy personifies the universe, and he's just like a big silhouette made up of the cosmos. Like, that is yeah. fucking trippy as shit, dude. And,
3: and you see this trend of like Steve Ditko drawing it complicated shit.
2: Yes. <laughs> he gets like complicated costumes.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And
2: he starts to get really surreal so and he's, weird. So he's
0: almost the opposite of Alex Toth, where Toth uses the black, to, the, the negative, and all yeah. that to, to very simple figures. Whereas this guy is obviously – did go draw tons of detail in, in his costume Yes. Stuff. There's a
3: lot of intricate line work. That's the I last make, place that you want to put details in the costume because you I can know. draw the character a massive times.
0: So. Well, I was I – and mean, I'm saying too he makes it a pain in the ass for anyone that has to follow yeah. him, huh? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
2: Uh, this one uh, historian, Bradford Wright, writes about this part of Steve Ditko's life. as He contributed some of his most surrealistic work to the comic book and gave it a disorienting hallucinogenic quality. Dr. Strange's adventures take place in bizarre worlds and twisting dimensions that resemble Salvador Dali paintings. He was inspired by beat culture and uh, Dr. Strange comic book it predicted this the youth countercultures at the time their fascination with like eastern mysticism and psychedelia like this was he was at the forefront like this was before that and uh he it was a weird niche like that these readers found this Dr Strange for it was like but- a alternative book almost
3: just think about that though you have to draw like a universe that does not exist that's in between space and time Come, like how the fuck yeah do what you is do that, that
2: what does that look you like? could see
0: to the influence of, of what Ditko's like? work in, in even the mcu yeah. so if you look at ant-man the movie that just came yeah. out there they go to the quantum realm which yeah. is very heavily tied to dr strange looks and a that, lot like this yeah it was very on. trippy in that part of the movie remember that yeah, yeah. yeah. and I hopefully think-
2: that's where they're gonna set like dr yeah.
0: strange and stuff
3: they established that's what this looks like. So yep. now every time I think about what a quantum realm or some mystical realm that I don't know exists, yep. I always think about this type of shit where, like, it's things folding on top of each other, like, yeah. and things snaking through and Just all like, different yeah. geometric shapes.
2: Like, infinite kaleidoscopic, like, realities. Like, it's mm-hmm. cool, dude. It's trippy as fuck. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, So after four years of spider Man's Steve did quit Spider-Man with issue 38. Quitter. I thought it was because – and I would said this before. It was a disagreement over the true identity of Green Goblin. But Steve says that's not the case because – and it makes sense. Like I said, Stan never knew what the story was going to be until he got the fucking pages. OK. So there couldn't have been a dispute. Like if Steve Ditko wanted to make Norman Osborn the Green Goblin, Norman Osborn would be the Green Goblin. Stan would have to come in and fill the words
3: and make it read the same way. OK. So well, maybe maybe Stan didn't like that that's what happened and that's why they got pissed at well, him. So
0: Green Goblin, we didn't know who he was for a long no. time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And like he he
2: also dies in in his run too. Or no, right. that's Gil Kane's run. Sorry.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. With his own glider.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but a- anyways, the, the tension between Stan and Steve, creative differences was just getting worse. Okay. They did not agree to go the same way. Uh, John Romita in two, 2010, John Romita Sr., who succeeded Steve Ditko – in 2010, actually gave a deposition recalling that Lee and Ditko ended up not being able to work together because they disagreed on almost everything. Cultural, social, historically, everything. They disagreed on characters. They disagreed on everything.
0: That's not good.
2: No. So uh, Ditko leaves and they give him a friendly farewell in the bullpen bulletins, which is like the readers, the, the letters page. Fantastic for number 52. Uh, I just think it's funny how after this like fucking mess of a relationship, how a company – Decides to deal with when somebody leaves. They pretty much said, "Steve in '66." Steve recently told us he was leaving for personal reasons. After all these years, we're sorry to see him go. We wish him talented guy success with his future endeavors. You know, no talk about like fuck yourself. You're screwing the guy over. Basically, he felt like he was being screwed over and not given any. The, The the words who
0: the we wish the talented guy. Yeah. Like what? What but, kind of a. Well, how do you describe, like, how do you. Like, the town that you're. Like, we wish that the guy. The most
2: fucking condescending. Yeah, very condescending, Thank you yeah, yeah. ever. So he goes back to Charlton Comics, where I mentioned before, page rates were low, but the artists got all the freedom. They owned the copyrights on their shit, on their characters, which is what all these guys want. All that's these all guys are going to talk about. That's all they want.
0: That, a lot of artists broke off, right? Yes. Like, was it Image Comics eventually? Yes, that was
2: the 90s, but this has no, happened saying, yeah, this several is, times. This is and, history repeating yeah, itself. Yeah, and you'll over. see, we'll get to that. He works on Blue Beetle and The Question for a while for DC also. And he returns to Captain Adam. Um, the Question is a trippy as fuck character too. The, okay, so keep that in <laughs> mind because this gets weirder. Okay. I haven't even got to the weird part yet. Uh, so he's also worked for writer Archie Goodwin. Archie Goodwin works with a lot of these guys and Warren Publishing, Creepy and Eerie Horror Comics, like I said before. another he's They give these guys a lot of work. So in 19... Okay, this is going to be a lot of questions here. I'm going to try to do my best to answer this. This is where it gets really weird. In 1967, he gives his objectivist ideas expression. He was an objectivist. He believes in objectivism. He gives these ideas expression in the form of a character called Mr. A that was published in Wally Wood's independent titled book, Witsay. And we'll get to Wally Wood in there. All you got to know is Wally Wood self-published a kind of a fanzine, asked his friends to submit stories. Steve says, oh, this is a place I can do what I really want to do. And there's this character called Mr. A, based on my objectivist uh, philosophy. These stories were controversial because he takes a really hard line on criminals. Um, do you think that this influences Rorschach from Watchmen? Yes. So the question is like a superhero-friendly version of Mr. A. Right. Rorschach is like a crazy, insane version of this Mr. A character okay hold on time for second nerd sidebar because what's the obvious question here folks? what the fuck is objectivism what the fuck is objectivism i asked the same question Uh, apparently objectivism is a it's a philosophical system developed by the writer anne rand that she wrote about in her books the fountainhead and atlas shrugged some people may know this she's kind of they're very long books very long books and um in her words from Atra Shuggs, this is – there was a long paragraph on the wiki page. I just grabbed the most concise version. She says, my philosophy in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. What the fuck does that mean? I'm though? not really I've, sure. I don't
0: know what the fuck
3: that means.
2: Uh, it's, I it sounds like it, a lot
3: of words put together. What do you think it means, mean- Boy? I think that it means that um if you're productive that's w- what you do like you have to be doing something. Yes. And then that is your life and then it's kind of like a uh, like a zen thing.
2: I kind of I kind of agree it's like to do to be happy you got to do something.
3: To do something is uh, you do something you can make yourself happy. Yeah, you got yeah, you got to do but it, it's 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 to kind of give people the idea that like to take yourself out of the equation you're part of a bigger cog and you have to fe- you, fi- you find your function and do it and then you should be happy and produce that things that contribute to this big uh, like collective a, thing it's like a zen way to make people part of a machine
2: Basically. Ah, yeah
0: Rugby, what's
3: gotten into you
2: how the fuck do you know that <laughs> by the <laughs> way that's the well, most that's that's very it, profound. I, mean, I,
3: I have to ho- hold on a second
2: did you eat protein this morning
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Gonna puke, <laughs> <laughs> right, boy? Oh shit! Listen, if you're light-headed, Whenever I have to think, like that's what happens. <laughs> if you're
2: lightheaded after that profound statement, you may want to lie down for a little bit. Yeah, what the fuck like, just you know, happened here? I think we drained Rugboy's Boy's life essence I, right there. I'm
3: kind of like the Hulk. I can only be smart for like 30 seconds at a time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh
3: shit! So Steve's into this
2: objectivism. He's an objectivist. It kind of gets really weird. So during this time, through the 70s, Ditko worked exclusively for Charlton Comics with a uh, fellow. Legends Wally Wood and Bernie Wrightson. Dicko returns in to DC 1975, creating the short lived Shade the Changing Man.
3: Shade oh, is yeah, an yeah. awesome character. I remember. Yeah, and yeah. then they, they revamped him for uh, Vertigo. Oh, yeah, yeah I was just going to say. That's where. Guy, yeah, you know?
2: that, and that's when I was in college and it came out, and that's where I discovered it. That, uh, listener, that that's is a trippy fucking That guy, is a right? great book. Shade the Changing Man, Vertigo. Dicko had nothing to do with that uh, revamp, okay. uh, 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 by the way. But it was Peter Milligan, Chris Bocciolo, great writing, great art. It came around the whole time when Sandman was coming out, the British invasions of comics, Animal Man, Grant Morrison's in An- The British are coming. Uh, so great, great British. One of the great British comics from the nineties, from Vertigo, Shade the Changing Man. Check it out.
3: So and he also did uh, for Godzilla fans. Oh he yeah, did Gorgo. He did the the, the British Godzilla. Gorgo Ditko did go do that. Yeah, he did a yeah, he did a, like the covers at least. I think. oh wow, they, he
2: actually him and uh, Marv Wolfman they had a Godzilla story that was changed into a, a Dragon Lord story mm-hmm. and published in this book Marvel Spotlight. Are you familiar is, with uh, Gorgo? Anymore? No, who's Gorgo?
0: He's the giant British. He's basically the British Godzilla. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, we asked the It's like uh, in Rugboy Just he asked
2: the lads in Northumberland last episode what they thought about Godzilla. Maybe they'll come back with uh, we know Gorgo. We know Gorgo. Yeah,
0: and then Gor- It was this story where Gorgo. Had this like, kid, too, or something. It was like Baby Gorgo. Baby Gorgo, and he's just trying to get the Baby Gorgo. So there is
2: a, a British version of Godzilla. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's black
3: and white, too. And he's really polite.
0: Wow. <laughs> um, Ditko continues to freelance
2: for Marvel until the late 90s. He actually – I remember this also. This is when I started reading comic books. Writer Tom DeFalco, Steve Ditko, introduced the character Speedball. Because Whoa! He, remember Speedball?
0: Isn't that cocaine? Coke. Uh, Yeah, he (laughs) was
2: uh, basically he was a freebaser. No, it's he's kind of a silly character, kind of like we have gold balls right now in Uncanny X Men. Like, Ooh. have you read gold balls? This yeah. guy's name? No, I don't want to see it. Dude, it's hilarious. Because he <laughs> literally like gold members of He me. shoots out gold balls and in the last episode uh, issue, he's leaping into battle going, gold balls. Everyone's like, uh please don't say that.
3: <laughs> so I refuse to read that on principle. <laughs>
2: Speedball was this guy, Robbie Baldwin. A little bit silly. I forget I read this and I have the the first couple is issues. He, is that
0: leopard print on his boots? It might be.
2: He just bounces
3: around. Well, from th- <laughs> he bounces off stuff. That's his power. He's basically like he bounces. He's like Flubberman
2: again. Though you see trippy L- like uh, LSD bubbles around him. Like it's kind of trippy.
3: That is kind of trippy. Yeah, it's, he's it's, like it's sort Flubberman. of like this blanket. Yeah, it is. Lumber. It looks
2: like our yeah. It looks like our beach blanket that I stole from some kid at the beach. <laughs> it's very. He's like Flubber. Like he just bounces off things. Like whatever. He was a silly character, but it was one of uh. uh why why is he? What,
0: what did he get? Like mutated or something? Ah, uh, who knows? Right? You want to know? Not really. You don't want to know. No, it, want doesn't to know. Yeah, it doesn't in matter. In
2: 1982, he begins working for a lot of small independent publishers, like Pacific Comics Eclipse, Archie, Western Publishing. Um, 1992, Ditko works with writer Will Murray to produce one of his last original characters for Marvel Comics. Another one they revamped that I love, the satirical superhero in the unbeatable
3: Squirrel Girl. So you got, got Ditko to thank for that. I love Squirrel Girl. I feel like he's like
0: Speedball, squirrel, like he's like almost like trolling the comic industry uh, with these, a, a with these creations. A
3: little bit. <laughs> after you create Spider-Man, you can just do whatever the fuck you want. That's yeah. yeah. true. I mean, what it's do like you do after you that? You just drop the mic, yeah. you can just fucking retire like right I'll there. Make,
2: it's like, I'll make Squirrel Girl and you people will fucking buy it.
3: Yeah.
2: And they did. Uh, there's a great uh, line in the New York Times in 2008 that kind of describes the whole state of comics. It, 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 they said, by the 70s, Steve Ditko was regarded as a slightly old-fashioned oddball. By the 80s, he was a commercial has-been. Picking up wretched work for higher gigs, following the example of Ayn Rand's John Galt, Ditko hacked out money making work, saving his care for the crabbed objectivist screeds he published with tiny presses. And boy I like could, that word, screeds. Screeds and boy I don't could like it, screeds. <laughs> I don't like that the word creed is in there. And boy could Ditko hack. Seeing samples of his Transformers coloring book and his big boy comic is like hearing Orson Wells sell frozen peas. He basically was phoning it in towards the end,
3: and he I can was, tell. So this legendary guy is yeah. like doing bullshit work. Uh, so because, he, yeah, uh, you know, he's just disillusioned. He's stuff.
2: disillusioned with the industry too. I can tell.
0: I can tell just by some of these, yeah, right, uh, these creations.
2: So he like officially, unofficially retires from mainstream comics in 1988, but he does occasional things here and there. As of mid 2012, Ditko continues to work at a studio in Manhattan in Midtown uh, West neighborhood of Manhattan. He still refuses to give interviews. He will not make public appearances. Uh, In 1969, the last thing he said, and he still, he referenced this all the time. He says, when I do a job, it's not my personality that I'm offering the readers, but my artwork. It's not what I'm like that counts. It's what I did and how well it was done. I produce a product, a comic art story. Steve Ditko is the brand name. He also said in 2012 that he had made no income on the four Spider-Man movies released to that time. That's a crime. That's a very – that is a huge crime. Now, for our pals in – maybe I can get this online. Our pals in uh, the UK, the BBC did a documentary about him in uh, 2007. Okay. Jonathan Ross uh, hosted a one-hour documentary for BBC4 titled In Search of Steve Ditko, and it covers his work at Marvel, DC, Charlton, and at Wally Wood's uh, independent book, Wits End, as well as some stuff about objectivism. Uh, It it sounds really cool. I kind of want to find this and watch it.
3: Yeah, I sure. like to see uh, but he's not in it. It's uh, just like his artwork.
2: Yeah, it's it's everyone talking about him cuz he probably does not want to have anything to do with it. It does say Jonathan Ross said that uh, he has spoken to Ditko on the phone and uh that they're cool. Uh, I mean, he's regarded as a quirky
0: genius. Before we, you know, obviously we're kind of wrapping up on Steve Ditko, but Ditko! Rugboy, what? You know, what what's the takeaway from Ditko? I obviously very complicated suits. Um, created Spider-Man, very quirky guy, but what else from the
3: art? Well, the thing about him is that, all right, so he decides to create these costumes that are very iconic. So there's a designer there. There's a design sense there. Yeah. Um, when you look at Dr. Strange, you know, he's very unique looking. There's no other character that, I mean, you know, he's got like a, he's got like a a Van Dyke mustache. He's got this cape with horns that Spawn had ripped off, you know, um, you know, he's got like these little scribble lines that are on the, on the trimmings of the cape. You know, he wasn't afraid to make things that were a little bit more weird to draw. Like you, you'd think if you were going to design a character, you want to go for simplicity. But right. he kind of went. So it's just he was quirky. He did things that no one would do. So Very like quirky, yeah. So like uh, that little edge to to his work, that little bit of a quirkiness. Um, the fact that he had to invent, like I mean, I'm sure Jack Kirby did a lot, you know, to establish a lot of this shit, mm-hmm. but. You know, he had his own twist on it. Is
0: he? Does he use angles as well as like Gil Kane? I, I'm just looking no. at this now. I don't think no, he does. He does not. They're no, more, some, more straightforward.
3: Straightforward poses. Yeah, right? he was using like you know the straight box panels. Yeah, um, he wasn't doing a lot of dynamic stuff, but um, he was he was good in his own way. He's no, like so he's known for his
0: quirky style. quirky style. And well, just think about the create, creative, the creativity in
3: yeah. the design
2: of say Doctor Octopus, right. Or a lizard, or a green goblin, like
0: uh, like he's, he's just he's just a very creative guy, very
2: yeah. creative weird guy, and per, like Spider-Man
3: would not be who he is today if it wasn't for Steve Ditko more than Stan Lee. Rug boy, what were you saying? I was just thinking, you know, he's just like even just the characters that are not in costume, even yeah. they're very iconic, like J. Jonah Jameson, yeah, like everything that he's done. it's like that's nobody's really deviated that far from from it. Mm-hmm. Like with the with the exception of John Romita, like changing the webbing a little bit and simplifying it, like he pretty much like locked all that shit down, like design wise.
0: So he's got to get a lot of credit for being just a creative motherfucker and thinking of these things on his own. Yeah, okay.
3: He went out. Uh, he went against the grain, um, and uh, you know he had these like you know cast shadows and these things you know that were kind of like from the horror comics and all that weird comic stuff. So you get that little bit of a pulpiness to your work. Okay, and that's what. That's what he brings to the table. Uh, so, in a nutshell, unique design, you know, quirkiness, and that pulpy look, you know, from the pulp comics that are in a modern like mainstream comics, you know. Yeah. yeah. So you got all that, and you put it together, you get you know Ditko.
2: Moving on, I think Rugboy. This is probably one of your favorite guys coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely coming up next:
0: the Jock and Nerd
2: Podcast.
0: Coming in at number seven, Mr. Frank Frazetta. Frank Frazetta. Have you heard of this guy? Have you? The name sounds familiar.
3: You don't
2: even know. Well, you have no, once you see these images. But I'm looking at these
0: images and he was born February 9th, 1928, died May 10th, 2010. No longer with us as well. Nope. Nope. But uh, I'm looking at some of these images and just initial thoughts. It looks like
3: a painting. Yes. I don't know. You can't really just nail him down as just a painter. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, his paintings are, are very, very famous, and they've uh, influenced a shitload of people.
2: Yeah, his this one's unique because uh, while the majority of his career is known for paintings, he's also noted for comic books, paperback covers. He did a lot, posters, record albums, and other media, fantasy and science fiction. Frank Frazetta, for people that don't know, is just the man at the muscle-bound fantasy the, like, he invented the style and the genre, you know, pretty much. Like. Of
0: being overly musc- muscular?
3: Yes,
2: Conan. You think Conan, yeah, yeah. you think Frank Fercetta.
3: He you, was, you, Conan and Death Dealer are probably his two most well-known paintings, you know, like the subjects of his paintings. You yeah. get a series of Death Dealer, and he did, you know, a bunch of Conan covers. Um, and these are iconic images. You, you cannot... Or in, they burn their way into your skull. like You can never forget them. Every, and you'll start to see his influence in other stuff when you see his work. Yeah,
2: it's very interesting. Uh, he, has been, he was inducted Will Eisner, Hall of Fame, Jack Kirby, in 1995 and 1999, respectively. What's funny about Frazetta is, is he removed one Z in his name. He spells his name with one Z because he said it looked too clumsy with that to have two Zs. It's got two Ts, but only one Z, hmm. people. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Frank has said that he started drawing as soon as he could hold a pencil, much like these guys. Very, like
3: all these guys. Do all these, these guys. Do he you. was like a prodigy. Yeah. Though. He was a child prodigy. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. his grandmother really encouraged uh, him in art. Um, like at two years old, she saw this. And at four, she bought his first piece of art from him Wow, at four years old. <laughs> Dude, at age eight, he's attending the Brooklyn Academy of Fine Arts.
0: Oh, so this really is a child prodigy.
2: This is a child prodigy. It's a small art school run by this Italian art teacher, Michael Falanga. Falanga. Just eight years later, age 16, he begins working in comic books. This guy is just, you can't stop him. His first comic book work was inking uh, this eight-page story called Snowman in this one-shot Tally Ho Comics in 1944 published by old publishers that are not around anymore.
3: So yeah, this is like yeah. pre uh, uh, a lot of these, uh, the the golden age stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow.
2: yeah, we're talking mid-40s here. He was drawing comics in every genre available very quickly. Westerns, fantasy, mystery, historical drama. He even did like funny animal comic books,
3: uh, humor books. Dude, that shit was amazing. Like, first of all... He could draw so versatile, so many in so many styles. Like you would think that he was a Disney guy. Yeah, and Disney tried to get him. Yeah, and he was like, "Fuck Disney." He didn't want to do it. He was always like, "He didn't want people to control him." Mm -hmm. So he uh, he was like, "No to Disney." That is
2: another trend. That's interesting. You bring up him being versatile.
0: Versatile. Yeah, I'm looking at this Buck Rogers cover. Yeah, and it's. It looks way different than some of these paintings. It's a completely
3: different other artist. He could do anybody. That's crazy. He could draw like anyone. So we talked about
2: Famous Funnies, America's first comic book in the 50s. He did a lot of Buck Rogers covers and stories for Famous Funnies. Uh, These covers gets the attention of cartoonist Al Cap. Okay? Mm -hmm. Frazetta gets a job working with Al Cap on the strip Lil Abner. That was
3: very famous. Yeah, so
2: this is kind of another (laughs) little mini sidebar here. Lil Abner was the biggest fucking comic strip at the time. He ghosted, his name is not on these, but you can see in the women drawing, if you compare him to the women comic books, it's clearly Frank Frazetta. What's Lil Abner? Lil Abner. I've heard this name before. Was a, a comic strip about muscular hillbillies and scantily clad women. This strip ran for forty three years.
0: I'm just reading this. Yeah, Corn graduulations, Moonbeam for taking a daily dip in a poo. And she's like,
2: "Pools is full water. Everybody always have to avoid the the stuff. What I, don't, the I, don't, hell I don't. I don't. are just, they saying? I'm not sure, but it's no about one cares,
3: But just look at
0: those
2: boobs. Yeah, look at those boobs. It's about <laughs> hillbillies. This fucking strip ran forty three years from 1934 through 1977, dude. It was read by 60 million people in 900 newspapers, 140 foreign papers, 28 countries. Frank Frazetta ghosted, ghost drew for Al Cap from 1954 to 1961 on Little admiral. No like,
0: wonder the country didn't progress all that much. Uh-huh. They're reading crap. <laughs> They're
2: reading this shit. You know what? Have comic strips really gotten any better since
0: then? Come on. Oh, shit. That's just wrong. <laughs>
2: uh, but uh, the, this is a huge uh, – I mean this is a high-profile gig. But again, at the time, you notice these ghost gigs. Nobody gets fucking credit for anything.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of ghost shit going on. But
2: they they guys do it because they just want to draw. They love it.
3: Yeah, they want to meet their hero, too. They're like, all of a sudden, fucking some guy comes up to you and says, you want to draw for me? And you're like, I can work with this motherfucker. And you're like, oh, I'm going to learn so much shit. I'm going to do it.
0: There's a a lot of feuds in in hip hop because of ghost writing, too. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. They cop a lot of shit, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Frank gets married in 1956 uh, to his wife, Eleanor, and they have four kids. In 1961, after nine years on Little Ebner, he returns to comic books. Now, in 1964, he does this painting
3: yeah, I'm looking at for
2: Mad one. Magazine of Ringo Starr, the Beatle.
3: It's an ad. Par- yeah, it's, like a, it's like a parody ad. It's a
2: parody like ad. for. Uh, it's called Blech.
0: Make beautiful hair. Let me guess. This face becomes the Mad... Logo, right? No, that's Ringo Starr. I know, but it, it, it's very similar to the Mad. Uh, now, Freddie no.
2: Newman was already established at this. Oh, point. Yeah, okay, that's okay. already oh, there. okay.
3: But like, what happens is, uh, advertising companies see this shit, and they see this, and they're like, oh, "We got to hire this guy to do stuff because, like, they, they, he nails Nick Ringo Starr's yeah, face does. perfectly." Yep. And he's like, "We could use him for movie posters because that yep. was like the trend was to do illustrated movie posters." Yeah. Um, and so he starts doing movie posters, and, and like. A lot of co- like sex comedies and stuff like that. He would do the movie posters because he was known for drawing sexy chicks and caricature faces that were realistic. And this is a completely different direction than what you'd think he'd be going. Yeah, uh, but so he was like a master of all different styles. He, no, he could do everything. Now. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, like specifically, it caught the eye of United Artists Studios, and his first movie poster he gets is for "What's New, Pussycat? Whoa,
1: that's Tom nice. Jones, yeah, baby,
2: oh, shit. geek boner. I knew boy We got a geek boner for Tom Jones, yeah, uh, which was like a sex farce starring. Uh, it was a Woody Allen movie with Peter Sellers. Now he does this poster. He gets the equivalent of a yearly salary. He makes it in one afternoon painting this. Yeah, fucking poster. he would get
3: like four grand or something. He's like, like oh, for each uh, one. why haven't I
2: been doing this sooner? Uh, so throughout the late sixties through the late seventies, he does a bunch of movie posters because it's good money.
3: Right. Yeah, the money's great. Um, and he could draw in that style that really it, it was really loose for him. Like, he's naturally like I watch a, this documentary called Painting with Fire. I'm oh yeah, I'm gonna get to I, that. Yeah, and it's I a good suggest one. everybody watch it, but yeah. you could talk about it in detail. But yeah. um, you know, he he talks about himself a lot and he says at one point he's talking about his cartoony style. That simple, like sketchy cartoon He's like, that's me. Wow. That's me. Like that's really the, him. This really, really tight stuff that you see with the figures. Yeah. It, that's me working. Wow. This is me just playing. This is me naturally. Wow. So he was making shitloads of money yeah.
2: playing around. Playing. Play. <laughs> wow. What a, a versatile, fucking prolific motherfucker. The, around this time is now where he starts to become the Frazetta that people know. He starts doing uh, painting covers for paperback adventure books. Most notably. Conan, Tarzan, John Carter series, but the how, most-
0: how difficult is it to switch from doing the inking like he was with Chuck, Buck Rogers to painting like this? Is that that's it's totally different. It's, it's
2: different? it's a discipline. completely oh, wow. different medium. That is pen and ink, which he loved. Yeah. These are oil paintings and some watercolor, which is a completely so totally different, different. different set of tools, set of how you work with them, set of uh, everything.
3: These paintings are small too, so you need amazing brush control.
2: I mean, the drawing is in his paintings, but the brush control, like, so the first one he does, Conan the Adventurer, uh, is, it's, this is where he starts to get well-known. He does a whole series of Conan books. And, uh, his, it's funny is he said the covers only kind of match the story inside. He never read any of the
3: stories. Oh, I I have a note for that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Let us, tell us.
3: All right. So first of all, um, you know, Conan has been around, like, it's like, you know, the book has been around for like years and years and years. So anyway they put out a Frank Frazetta Conan cover and the book sells like gangbusters. Like it never sold before. (laughs) Yeah, All of a sudden it it, it, like all of a sudden eclipses any Conan, like all of a sudden Conan becomes popular. Yeah. Like um, that's because of Frank Frazetta, like that cover like sucks so many people into buying that book. And um, so he's, you know, he's responsible. Conan was a book book, not a comic book. Yeah, It was, right. a, novel. It was a book, a novel. like yeah. a regular book for
2: that. Well, he never, he never read the book. He didn't think people read the book. Yeah. They would tell him
3: just they, paint shit and yeah. then we'll find a book for it.
2: Yeah. Cause he was convinced that people just bought the books based on the cover and probably didn't even read them.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and he was <laughs> so probably he just, right. Like, call him up. And go, you yeah. got anything? He's like, ah, I'm working on a fucking thing. You like, we'll,
2: we'll just make a story for it. That's fine. <laughs> this is how powerful, how many books his paintings moved. Wow. They were just like, let's work it around. So during this time, he's doing a lot of commercial work, movie posters, book jackets, calendars on a lot of different mediums. Like I said, oil, watercolor, ink, and pencil washes, ink washes,
0: and pencil. Have you guys dabbled in doing like oil and? Yes, water, you guys yes, like absolutely.
2: Oil, you gotta try it. Takes does not dry ever. <laughs> Like a month, it'll still be. You can go back and it's still wet, and you can work with it. It's crazy. Weird. It's a different way. He to likes work.
3: that. He likes it to be all. I like bad. it to be. Oh it.
2: shit! Oh, you're still wet painting. Let me move your paint around. Geek boner. <laughs> Push this uh, burnt sienna into my uh, uh fuchsia. What <laughs> <draw>? <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, you got so
3: excited.
0: You basically, it's still wet. I can work with this. Geek
1: boner.
3: I'm
2: good. So he's still doing a couple of uh, covers and stories. Again, for Warren Publishing's eerie, creepy Vampirella. His Vampirella shit is the bomb, dude. He draws, he paints the hottest. Absolutely. Vamp- ha- Can you pull some? Hottest Vampirella
3: you're going to see. Vampirella. But to be noted, though, uh, he also did a lot of famous oh, like um, record covers. Yes. Like the Molly Hatchet cover. Is, I, I, is yep. Like-
2: and this was another uh, combination of the right time at the right artist. Heavy metal music was on the rise in the 70s.
0: I can see this, yeah. This
2: his is. artwork is perfect for heavy metal. So he does covers for Nazareth, Molly Hatchet, Dust. And he, uh, in the late 2000s, he did a Wolf Mother uh, album, hmm. which is uh, perfect. So now his his work's reaching a wider audience all of a sudden. Now, in the early 80s, Frazetta would work with producer Ralph Bakshi, listener. did we'll the listened, Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah, yeah. if you listen to our earlier shows, you know Ralph Bakshi worked on the 60s Spider-Man cartoon. Was kind of a... Uh, Indie animator.
0: You can hear about Ralph Bakshi in our history of Spider-Man. Episode 16? Yep. Somewhere around there.
2: Yeah. You'll find it. You'll find Uh, it. And so him and Frank get together and they work on this film called Fire and Ice, released in 1983. It is a rotoscoped kind of
3: realistic animation of Frank's work. Rotoscoping is just for the people who don't know. It's like when they kind of film something and then they trace it. Cool. All right. Oh, okay. So, like, almost like if you know what motion capture is, like, they use it to capture. Basically, they they shoot it with real people and mm. then they trace around they it. They pretty much draw over it. You've seen this. Disney uses this
2: a lot. Every every big studio uses it a lot. Uh, Mark Allen Fishman in our yeah, last episode talked it. about how he uses it in comic books.
0: It's so kind you of. you take pictures and then you. you and use I, it well. I
2: have a link to the trailer, listener, so you can click it. I'm running it to show anything. You can kind of see that they filmed this and the guy they would go back and they would. Uh, Draw over it to get the motion. there.
0: I see it. Yeah. yeah, I see. I definitely can see. It's very uh, realistic. Yeah.
2: If you want to learn more about rotoscope, I got a list of uh, rotoscope movies,
3: and it's everybody. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. You've seen it. You've seen it. Uh, you, you want to know where you see it? The where you everybody would know. Yeah. If you watch He Man in the cartoon, oh, He Man is all, rotoscope. all yeah. rotoscope. Yeah,
2: the intro. It's, that's right.
3: Punches the 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 thing. Yeah, yeah. That that style yeah. was influenced. Fire and Ice was the predecessor to He Man. Yes. So without fire and ice, there would be no He-Man in the Masters of the Universe. Hmm.
2: What was the first rotoscope? Uh, Oh, you know, Light
3: had it or something. No,
2: you know, Max Fleischer, Superman cartoons, invented the rotoscope. Oh shit! The Max Fleischer; those cartoons were also rotoscoped way back then.
3: Wow, I did not know that. Yeah.
2: Anyways, in the eighties, Frank Frazetta creates a gallery. It's called Frazetta's Fantasy Corner
3: in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Right, boy, have you ever been to this gallery? I wanted to go so many times while he was alive. Yeah. But it never, it never happened. So this gallery, uh, maybe one day I'll do yeah,
2: it. I, I, yeah, it, it's housed his work, and then he had works of other artists. Uh, and actually in 2009, Frazetta's Conan the Conqueror painting was the very first painting of his to be offered for sale. B- sold for a million dollars. Holy shit. Which is amazing for like a guy who's current uh, painter.
3: That yeah, that's wild. fucking amazing.
2: So, so now it gets a little uh, sad here in the end before uh-huh. it gets happier. Uh, but wait till the next one. Boy, that's a tragic one. Anyways, in later in Frazetta's life, uh, he was doing all this work while nearly dying because he had like an undiagnosed thyroid condition that he didn't really check on. Uh, he survived six strokes.
3: Dude, this f- motherfucker got strokes like like every week,
2: every other week, <laughs> uh, to the point where his, he
3: was like a
0: cat. His right
2: draw, his right side was paralyzed. He was right-handed. He taught himself how to draw with his left hand.
0: That motherfucker. Oh shit! That's God determination. Damn,
2: Frank Frazetta. This is all, by the way. Rugboy just mentioned this doc, and I believe a lot of this is in there. It's called Frazetta Painting with Fire, two thousand three documentary. It's up. very well
3: done. By I, the way, I'm
2: going I'm to watch it. I'll have a link to the show notes where you can either purchase it or find out more about it. But by 2009, Frank is living on a huge estate in the Pocono Mountains with a small museum. This museum is open to the public. Um, in July of that year, his wife dies after a year-long with cancer. Uh, now, after his wife's death, her children become embroiled in a custodial dispute over their father's
3: work. This is all in the news and this shit. Is all, this yeah,
2: season. this is all in the news. You might remember in December 2009, Frank Jr. was arrested on charges of breaking into the family museum and attempting to remove 90 paintings that had been insured for $20 million.
3: <laughs> um, That's a lot of scratch, right?
2: Yes. There. In April of, I think it's this year or last year, the family said the dispute over the paintings had been resolved. They dropped the charges. Everyone's kind of cool. In fact, they have, a, there's a website called Frazetta Girls. It is his daughter and his granddaughter and uh, it's this mother-daughter team, Holly and Sarah, and they uh, travel to comic cons and galleries, and they try to showcase his original and licensed art, and they work merch. Uh, they're actually... Robert Rodriguez is a huge Frank Frazetta fan, and he wants to open a museum. He wants to redo Fire and Ice also. He has influenced so many people that uh, people cite him as a direct influence. For example, Yusuki Nakano, a lead artist for Legend of Zelda, Cites Frank as a direct influence on on his work for
0: Legend of Zelda. Mark Allen Fishman is going to appreciate this next one.
2: Uh, The creator of He-Man, Roger Sweet, like we said, directly influenced by Frazetta. Not at
0: that point. I'm not talking about that point. But yeah, keep going.
2: Oh, yeah. I'll get to that. Mark Silvestri, another comic book artist. And that's why I threw this in. Uh, WWE fans, the face and body painted professional wrestler Kamala was copied by artist and wrestler Jerry Lawler from a character in a Frazetta painting. Is that even worth mentioning, Kamala? Kamala. (laughs) I kind of... Who was Kamala?
0: You remember, remember Kamala?
2: I kind
3: of. Remember... Yeah, he was a stupid wrestler.
0: He was this big uh, black dude. Oh yeah, him. I remember yeah.
3: Kamala. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, he was he was like the worst. He just it was like an old. Yeah, that he's like, he's
3: like I, a cartoon. I, I would not want that to be in my legacy. He's like Kamala, a cartoon on, character. Dude. He, yeah, I he remember couldn't speak, Ka- and he would yeah. just
0: bang his chest like yeah. he was like the the worst character. He of kind of just like bumped into be. people
3: and didn't really yeah, wrestle. So racist. I
2: do remember Kamala.
0: Super racist. Like the worst character of what a guy from Africa would look like. Like that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly as it says on the on the wiki. He's a we wild savage. We can't close on, on Frank Miller with Kamala. We got to mention some other Frank Frazetta.
2: Well, Frank Frazetta, I'm, I'm going to say check out the Frazetta, Frazetta girls. com. It's a cool site well, you can, you can buy you can buy Frazetta prints and learn about him. Uh Sony Pictures has acquired the rights to 2014 and Rodriguez is set to direct so they're working on a Fire and Ice remake.
3: Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I hope that comes out Frazetta. good. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to note about Frazetta is that um he was an avid photographer, and a lot of people thought that he used his photographs oh, in really? his work, really? but he did not. No. My. He was a very staunch now, he could have been lying, but <laughs> like, he was a staunch person saying like everything comes out of my fucking brain.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Like everything. I can like, see, I can see. Like, that, I didn't, yeah. He didn't use. He didn't swipe. He didn't. Like th- there's a quote in the beginning of that that documentary of of him saying, "I never swiped anything." Remember, he didn't swipe his own ass. It's, uh, it's, I, it's
0: I, it's all is is all the takeaway then? I guess from Frank Verzetta is that the guy was just extremely talented and could do multiple different yeah, styles. Like, I would, think, I would think different base oil, ink paintings. Is that is yeah. that the takeaway? I would away? put him
3: up there with like um like even a classical painter.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah. seeing like, that in a lot of his work. Yeah,
3: like I would put him up with like you know like fucking Rembrandt or yeah. some shit. It's a
0: lot
2: like, like drawings of Michelangelo or Da Vinci. Does drawings. he
0: does he get c- remembered as a comic book artist because of his early work in in comics, and then later on he's just a painter, not just well, a painter, but. That's how he's he's considered a comic book artist. You want well. to know?
3: I think that he just influences comics okay. yes. more yes. than anything. Like, yes. okay, like he did some shit in comics. Like he did enough stuff to like, you know, to be say he's comic. Book yeah. Arts. But people looked at his work and they were like, I want to be able to fucking channel that into my own work because yeah, no, that shit no. gave everybody boners. There was just like like art boners that going all over the place. His
2: full like, color paintings are so visually engrossing and stunning. Like it just grabs you again, grabs you by the balls, pulls you in, and you're right. Everything you, like I can cite so many people who are working in comics that are influenced by him. Just like Simon looking. Bisley is yes, a huge yes, presented like guy. You yes,
3: know? Uh,
2: that's the one. I love his uh, Bernie Wrightson. His self, also his self portrait when he was younger is amazing. That too. looks like
0: the Punisher.
2: Yeah, dude, he looks badass in yeah. that self portrait. It's such a great self portrait.
3: Yeah, and he was like a like a muscular, athletic guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. He was a jock. He was in shape, yeah.
2: He was a jock. He probably was a jock. Yeah, so he,
3: was. Really cool. he was. He was a miss. baseball He almost got yeah. drafted to play baseball. Oh, wow. That's really
2: cool. Yeah. Did I did not know that. Look at this. I did. That's a good one.
3: Yeah, he was like a into, into athletics. He was in like, uh, you know, he was, uh, I think the Giants or somebody were going to draft him. And mm. he never did it. He that's, was like, fuck this, doing that's art. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, Frank Fazetta uh, can't be denied. His influence and his just sheer talent. It's
3: just so great. Should we and move he on? draws awesome chicks. He draws there you go. Nice, <laughs> bosomy nice chicks. bosoms.
2: All right. Last one, folks. We're getting to the last, probably the least known, the most influential, and the most tragic out of all of these stories.
0: I can't wait to hear about this it's guy. It's coming up next. <laughs> Number six, We're
2: the last up. guy on this volume two, right? The last guy, number six, the last artist on volume two of comic book artists you should know. Listener, I hope you are enjoying these awesome stories because this one is going to be a doozy. Wally motherfucking Wood. Cartoonist Mr. Wally Wood.
0: Wallace Allen Wood, born we June. We have
2: Wood. <laughs> we have Wally Wood.
0: Born <laughs> June 17th, 1927. Died ni- November 2nd, 1981.
2: Wow, 54 years Ah, old. you noticed something the, this man, man had a short life. life, Shorter, you know? life. Shorter, Shorter life. Shorter than these other guys, and you will see why. He was uh, the inaugural
0: inductee into the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame. Well, I, and I've never heard of this guy. In you know? 1989. And he's the first guy.
2: Yeah. Inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame, 1992. Wally Wood is an incredibly influential cartoonist uh, that a lot of people are not aware of his contributions. And we'll find out why. Let me tell you about this guy's story. So this is a sad story. It kind of ends tragically. Okay. Okay. So again, like all these guys, Wally would learn love to draw at an early age. Wow. He right? No Surprising. kidding. Surprising. Oh shit. Yeah. Right. Uh, he even recalled that he had a dream when he was six about finding a magic pencil that could draw anything. Huh. Kind of foretold his, his future. Now the problem was his father Max Wood was a lumberjack.
0: No no ki- no shit! A uh, lumberjack named Wood.
2: Oh yeah, I didn't even get that one. No. <laughs> oh shit. You're gonna, You're gonna nerd uh, it. I didn't I didn't no. even <laughs> Rugboy, where were you on that one? Uh, what the fuck? I was a little late. <laughs> so you know how lumberjack types are?
0: Yeah. It's... Surly. Right? Manly. Manly, not all that creative probably. His father Beard, beardy. 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 So
2: that being the case, his father Beobie. didn't really like Wally's artistic uh, leanings. Mm. He was not a fan. The, uh, and they were very similar people. They both had strong egos. They both didn't take criticism well. They were both very self-centered, very stubborn, which meant they fought a lot. He wanted him to be like a man. Right. Why can't you be like your older brother? He's probably a lumberjack.
1: Right. Can you be can be act an artist. like a man.
2: You can act like a man. <laughs> but Wally was shy and introverted. And this uh, – the, the drawing was kind of a, a, a escape from this unstable kind of crazy childhood. Uh, it was a very chaotic childhood. They moved around a lot. The drawing and art was one thing he could control. Hmm. Now, this it will be a running theme throughout Wally Wood's life is control. OK? OK. His mother, however, was the creative half of the family. She encouraged his drawing talent. He studied and copied his cartoonist idols. Uh, guys that a lot of these guys have talked about, Roy Crane, Hal Foster, Will Eisner, Milton Caniff, Alex Raymond. He graduates – Wallywood graduates high school in 1944, joins the Merchant Marine at about the end of World War II. After his discharge there, he joins the paratroopers for a couple of years, attends Minneapolis School of Art for one year. He moves to New York with his mother and brother. He works as a busboy, he, and he's hustling his portfolio all over Manhattan. He's kind of jumping around. He just wants to draw. Okay. So after being rejected by every single company he visits, he finally meets this fellow artist, John Severin. Severin invites Wally to visit his studio. It's called the Charles William Harvey Studio where Wally Wood meets another great cartoonist, Harvey Kurtzman. Now, this guy, Harvey Kurtzman will be in the next part of this show. He's another great cartoonist that people don't know but had a huge impact to the media.
0: Okay. You should know. You should know. Kind of, well, this, yeah, exactly. We're telling you. Then
2: you it's another know. great artist you should know. That'll be volume three. So it's here at Wally Wood hears that Will Eisner is looking for a background artist with the spirit. And Wood is like, oh, shit. Uh, I have to go work for Will Eisner. He loves Thanks. Will Eisner. He's the man. Will Eisner is the man. He goes to visit him and he gets hired on the spot. Right? Okay. While there, he assists Will Eisner and George Wonder on uh, the newspaper strip Terry and the Pirates, another one of his idols. Uh, with lettering, uh, and he's doing backgrounds for the spirit. But uh, the whole time, Wally wants to do his own comic books. Wally would always wanted to be in control. So Wood says himself, the first professional job was lettering for Fox Romance Comics in 1948. This lasted about a year. I also started doing backgrounds, then inking. Most of it was the romance stuff. For complete pages, it was five dollars a page, twice a Damn. week. Twice a week, I would ink ten pages in one day. Wow. That's uh, not a huge rate.
3: No, that sucks balls. Yeah.
2: Uh, This is also the time of his life where he starts meeting artists that he collaborates with for a a lot of his career. Uh, One cartoonist named Harry Harrison. But early on, he began to distrust publishers to get a bad taste for the industry when one of his first employers, Victor Fox, who is a legendary sleazy publisher, cheated about thousands of dollars. This is not good.
3: But the artists are always at a disadvantage. The artists
2: yeah. are always getting screwed throughout history. But there was also good publishers at the time. There's publishers like Avon Comics and EC Comics. Uh, he meets another artist, Joe Orlando, that he collaborates with for a long time in the early fifties. Uh, Joe and him create hundreds of pages together at EC. So at this time, while working for publisher Bill Gaines and editor of Al Feldstein of EC, he convinces them to start a line of science fiction comics called Weird Science and Weird Fantasy. You've seen these Weird Science.
0: Yeah, I've heard of these.
2: It's Wally Wood's idea to start it, and this is where Wood inks and pencils some of his most amazing best works, many considered instant classics, amazing science fiction illustrations. It's, and Wood was crazy. He would experiment with different illustration ty- styles. Like he would do like cross a scratchboard or a cross tit or a wash. Um, a lot of times in the same story, in the same book.
3: In some ways, like he does do a lot of hatching as well. I, I would put him in like the Bernie Wrightson school of, yeah. of. of uh, I mean, maybe they influenced each other. Uh, but uh, he's one of those guys that could get very realistic. Yeah. And, and very, very detailed with form mm-hmm. and hatching and uh, the lighting and it, it, just the way he delineates shapes and give them like they feel like they have weight to them right Which one? They feel oh, like they're, they're they, they, that they have a mass to them. So he's very good with like giving that realistic quality to his work.
0: You know who that kind of reminds me of? This This picture you just pulled up? Yeah. Um, John Diodato kind of draws like this.
3: Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: Mike Diodato. Mike Diodato. About. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mike, Mike Diodato. Right? Does yeah. he, he draw like this? Yeah.
2: You know what? Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I see a lot of like Ivan Rice and these new guys. Yeah. That's uh, a whole new trend is to have a little Wally, Wally the- Wood. Yeah.
0: Is that, is that a good, good call? Observation? That's
2: yeah. absolutely correct.
0: Because with yeah. the, especially with the line work and the like the face. Yeah. To, to create shadow. Yeah. Yeah. That's very – Mike Diodato is very – very um, does that a lot. Pull That's correct. That Yeah. Doug Mankey, Ivan Rice, all Don't, these guys, they're, uh, they're, they're pulling
2: a lot from Wally Wood. Huh. Yeah. I just noticed that too. That's very good.
0: I, I <laughs> hey, I, you know what? I'm an art snob now. Yeah.
2: I said I – said,
3: I was like, Anthony, we're going to make you an art snob out of you yet. <laughs> hey, listen. If you take the time to look at it and then just kind of cross-examine yeah. like different things, you're going to see things that yeah. carry over. It's obvious. Yeah. Huh. There's whole different schools of art that are happening – in comics and that's one of the things i really hate about the youth of today only reading manga because yeah. uh, i think manga is very popular now with the youth but that's only one kind of art like there's so many other different styles and different disciplines and different depths of art so um you know to turn someone on and say hey, look at this stuff really look at it mm-hmm. for a second instead of just glancing at it oh it looks like comic book art but what kind is it what kind of comic? what are they doing like what are they what are they drawing upon? It's, it's all interesting. And these 15
2: guys that I've kind of curated, everything today, you can look at it and trace it back to one of these dudes.
0: Yeah, and it's not multiple now. dudes. Yeah, I'm seeing that right and now.
2: And if you are an illustrator and you want to break into comics, maybe you have your own independent webcomic, you're working on your stuff, go back and look at these guys. It will definitely change the way you approach your art.
3: It was a different level of work, too. Yeah, it was a different Like just yeah. the amount of like, We have so many distractions now and we have so many tools now. We have a computer that will speed up the process. It's so much
2: easier. Like this is literal sweat and tears
3: and blood. So you can literally get something that looks fairly complicated using less time. Yeah. All right. We got so many tricks. But in those days, they did not have those tricks or they had very, very antiquated kind of tricks to, to get things done. So a lot of this is blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of this is expertise, and a lot of this is complete and amazing control over brushes.
2: If you, you, know? uh, if you see some of these original pages, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of white paint cover-up, a right. lot of uh, pasted panels in, a lot because you could not delete with your eraser tool in Photoshop right. and recolor something with a click. There's a, there's a lot of reworking. Sometimes whole pages are scrapped and redone. Like This is serious work, man.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So you got to look at that. That's the art there. That is the, the art. art. Rugby, yeah. go throw up again.
2: <laughs> that was really good, rugby. How you feeling? Do you need an Advil? You need to leave. Does your head hurt?
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel like a little. I can't answer now. I'm like, no, I'm, uh, All right. I feel so, like I just jizzed. I have to like wait a couple minutes for another round. So while while <laughs> while rugby recovers, I have a nerdgasm.
2: Well, you had a while, well, geek well to get some geek fire. He, he
3: had a little Woody.
2: We're going to continue with uh, <laughs> EC Comics and Wally Wood, and the fact that uh, these publishers, Gaines and Felstein at EC, were some of Wood's biggest supporters, biggest encouragers, biggest fans. In fact, EC Comics was uh, uh, unordinarily one of the best places to work. They treated their artists with respect. The EC Comics had the best page rate in the business at the time. They encouraged artistic individuality, all things unique to the mainstream comics industry Mm. at the time. So Woods and Harry Harrison, his buddy, they're killing it. But the the publishers are encouraging Wood to go out on his own. Uh, Harry Harrison actually goes on to have a really successful science fiction writing career. And uh, Joe Orlando, who was the other collaborator, enjoyed a great solo career at EC. But Wood was going to finally be in control of his own art. Nate him would do what he wanted. So in the early 50s, he quickly builds this amazing reputation for intricate artwork uh, in all these different kinds of genres. He marries his first wife, Tatiana Weintraub. Tatiana. Tatiana.
0: Tatiana. She's
2: actually a colorist. She, uh, she's also an artist, oh, okay. a comic book colorist. Uh, so, so now it's, <laughs> it's the early 50s. He, <laughs> he, I think that last thought really I took it out of him. Yeah, I gotta
3: be quiet for like at least. <laughs>
2: Uh, Wallywood is in love. He's becoming a superstar in comics. Uh, everything is just peachy. He has never been happier. Wallywood goes on to tackle every genre and master every genre romance comics, crime comics, war comics, science fiction, just masters it effortlessly. In 1952, cartoonist Harvey Kurtzman launches Mad okay. as a four color comic book and Wants Isn't the man that yes. we're all familiar with? Yeah, okay. he wants Wally Wood to be his first lead artist. Basically, Wood's ability to mimic any artist was perfect for Harvey Kurtzman's parodies and send-ups of comic book superheroes and strips. Okay. So you know how Mad does it with the movies? Yeah. Early on, they were doing the same thing with comic book strips. So all now, Wally Wood is drawing. He's drawing exactly like his idols and making fun of those books. And Mad is a hit. In 1953, writer-editor Al Feldstein from EC Comics, he writes uh, one of Wood's most famous stories. It's in Weird Science Number 22. It's called My World. It's a six-page loving tribute to science fiction artists and to Wood in particular, the story is. Mm. It's an instant classic. It's still considered a classic. My World.
3: Well that sounds cool. Yeah,
2: I'm gonna I'll find a link to that and you guys should check that out. I'm definitely gonna check that out. So and while doing all this, he's also drawing uh, two months of spirit strips for newspapers working over Jules Pfeiffer. During this time, this guy, his production, this guy is crazy. He's, he's, his production is unbelievable. He's working, Wallywood is working for Marvel. DC, Warren Publishing, Avon, Charlton, Fox Comics, Golki Comics, Harvey Comics, King Comics, Atlas, Youthful, and Toy Company Whammo. Here's the problem: He had a crazy amount of production, but crazy, crazy. Cran-y? What did I say? Crazy. what? Cranny. Crazy amount of production. Of course, this comes with a price. This, is dun, what, dun, dun, this is what guys would do. He would work all day long. He didn't sleep much. Didn't take care of himself. They would smoke a lot. They would fall asleep at the do- drawing board, and everyone at the time would drink lots of booze to keep them going.
3: Really, really yes. drinking? Yeah, doing snorting lines of coke. No, yeah, I
2: would, the, drinking puts the, me to bed. They were, I know, which is I was surprised with everything I it read. It was me like piss and go to bed. All these cartoonists used a lot of alcohol to keep them going, which really doesn't make sense. But I think it, it would Not loosen you up to draw.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you. I don't you're, know. Better. How's your drunk drawing? Oh, well, it's pretty drunky. <laughs> <laughs> I understand <laughs> that like drugs and art like it, they do cross over. Yeah. You, I, in the way that I see it, this is how I classify it. I never put alcohol in the mix there. I yeah. would put like people who will get high with marijuana. Yeah. Definitely because I feel like that it maybe expands your mind or whatever, this lets you concentrate more. But this is brain. this was like you gotta think of
2: the environment. This is like the madman era. These were office buildings. Everybody went for liquid lunches, everybody had martinis. Everyone drank. It was just accessible.
3: You had more. I would feel that it, it, it impairs your motor functions too much. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you had more drugs in mind,
0: uh, Rock boy.
3: The, yeah, like I would say Coke, Coke like, yeah. more, or like, more barbiturates well, or either speed.
0: An, any sort of amphetamine to like. I mean, get you if up. they did, and yeah. I didn't read
2: about it, mostly everything it was just like. It sounds oh.
3: like it's very counterproductive well, to uh, drink
0: yeah Yeah. Alcohol is a
3: depressant, obviously. The, so, yeah, it doesn't Have you pressure. ever been to a drink and draw? The, uh, no, I haven't. I want to go to one. I've been to a few. Are they fine? Like, you go and you get drunk and you're like <laughs> – And you look at your drunk and you're like, what the fuck? These are I-? <laughs> shit. <laughs> They're never good, are they?
0: No. Nah. It, well, I mean, it, it looks like you had a stroke it. midway dr- while you were drawing probably. <laughs> oh, what the hell?
2: So okay. uh, so he drank to keep on going. So, But by 1956, EC Comics was essentially – Out of business due to our previously mentioned fuckface Frederick Wortham. (laughs) I Mm. hate him. (laughs) Seduction of the Innocent causing the industry-wide witch hunt and the comics code. Easy couldn't continue. Mad comics remained. While he kept on going working, he worked for Mad. He kept plugging. He 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 had to pay the bills. He would Mm -hmm. find work. During the 60s, he did a lot of Topps trading cards. And he actually did the concept roughs for the classic famous Topps 1962 Mars Attacks card series. He did the concept, Rob's final art on that by Bob Powell, Norman Saunders. But during the '60s, Wood is feeling restless. He's feeling underused, ill-used, mm-hmm. and his drinking is getting better. I mean, not what? better. <laughs> better. He's getting better at it. Let me yeah. uh, rephrase that. He's getting better at drinking. That's that's one way to look at it. Yeah, He's drinking He's is getting worse. Good
3: at getting fucked up.
2: His marriage is in trouble. His personal life is falling apart. He's getting frustrated. And also, he starts having these really bad headaches, yeah. like severe migraine headaches that go on for days.
0: He's a classic alcoholic. Maybe he
2: tried to be smart too long. He, might, <laughs> he did what his rug boy did. And like, I think he needs some booze rug boy. Uh, so
3: he tried that. It didn't work. So
2: <laughs> so this, this cycle of, uh, this cycle of staying up, working hard, getting pages done, using booze, staying up, leading to headaches – Leading to more booze to dull the pain to keep going uh, is going to take a toll on his health. And a
0: wick at both ends.
2: And it's started to affect his art a little bit. In fact, in 1964, a Mad editor rejected one of his stories. Mm. Oh, shit. Uh, Wally Wood, this was his first rejection since he helped launch Mad in 1952 that he ever got. He was fucking pissed and he quits, man. That's a
0: bruising of the ego right there. You
2: know who that editor was? The same Al Feldstein who wrote the loving tribute, My World, Hmm. uh, 11 years earlier. Hmm. It was a guy who rejected him. So he's burned a lot of bridges. And at this point, it's 1962, 63. Wally is really at his lowest point in his career. He's he's still drinking a lot. He he goes to do inking inks because there's money in inks. Mm-hmm. But he's inks he's inking for Vince Coletta for Charlton Comics. As I said, the industry's lowest paying publisher. It's shit work. He's turning rough layouts into finished art for ten dollars a page. When just ten years earlier at EC Comics, he was getting fifty bucks a page to do the same thing.
3: Mm. What a downfall! He's lowering himself.
2: They, it was a, and it's a sweatshop there. They cranked out pages. Yeah, All day long, out of sequence, just fucking drawing. Don't know what they're drawing. Uh, But by 1964, that's just a little dip. 1964, he kind of gets his shit together. He gets sober. This is where it gets really good. He gets a job at Marvel. Nice. Not just a job, but Stan Lee is touting this as the second coming of Wally Wood. He's making a big deal out
3: of this. So obviously he has a rep, and people are going to bank on it. Wally Wood is the
2: get, and they're like, this is like the second, you know, his revival of his career. At this point, Daredevil is near canceled. Four issues in, Daredevil is on its last legs. Mm -hmm. They give him Daredevil issue five in 1964. In fact, Stanley says in the ads, under the brilliant artistic craftsmanship of famous illustrator Wally Wood, Daredevil reaches new heights of glory. On the blurb of the first issue of Daredevil that he was on. And despite Wallywood really didn't do any superhero stories prior to this, he mastered this genre and well. In fact, at this point, his refined style was so clean, so uncluttered, it was a perfect match for Daredevil. The sleek look was perfect. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Mm. Daredevil number seven. Number seven. I'll have seven. I can't talk. Daredevil number (laughs) seven. Number seven. I'll put a link in the show notes to the cover. You know, Stanley and Bill Everett had created Daredevil mm-hmm. originally. Yep. And Bill Everett had created the yellow and red acrobats. Oh, so that's cool. true. Now, Daredevil number seven, first appearance of the red suit. Not only that, I'm going to blow your minds, and this is going to lean to the sidebar. Here are Wally Wood's contributions to Daredevil. He designed the red costume, designed the interlocking DD logo, designed the visualization for his radar sense— <laughs> created the Billy Club slash grappling hook device and more. Huh? And so and he's
0: made the, basically the modern. We got Daredevil. another
2: Bob Kane Bill Finger
0: situation. Before we get in the sidebar, <gasps> oh hello, oh shit. Before we get in the sidebar, um, Rugboy, can you just speak on the art in this and what what I should be seeing or what's what's noticeable besides the fact that he made Daredevil who he is today?
3: When he was doing the horror comics and the pulpy stuff, he was doing like this very overcomplicated a hatchy style. Okay. And he kind of like pared it all down and, and came up with the slick crisp style that was probably driven by inking more yeah. than yeah. anything. Uh, he was an anchor for a while. He inked over other people. Mm. So he kind of learned like the economy of a line, right? the economy of like oh. where to use the blacks. And it it just makes everything more iconic.
0: Cause I'm looking also, at like some of his early work and it's very, very detailed, a lot of the science. Yeah. This, stuff. This, and this like this sleek style is more it,
3: clean. Yeah. it yeah. made it dark. It like it perfectly fit the character, but you also have to look at certain things. Okay. Like when you have a pen or, or a crow quill pen or a brush, all of those, the way you touch the, the, the paper, it's like it, 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 it's an, it's an, it affects the line. Mm-hmm. So his way of touching the paper with the pen the line is very consistent. The line flows like according to where the lighting is. So as like at the top, where those light hitting like like Namor's hand up there, yeah. his line's very thin, and on the under part, the it's a little bit thicker. And that's it's all a little bit yeah. thicker. It's very subtle,
2: and it's all the slightest must its mastery of the brush. Mm, it's subtle. very hard to do that.
3: So like if you're a technical person and you look at the line, the line work. You're going to see that. You're going to see that control over line weight. So that's what Wally Woods. Um, there was rumors going around. People used to say he could draw a perfect circle. Mm-hmm. You know, he could draw a perfectly straight horizontal and a perfectly straight. That's um, crazy. He probably could line without a ruler.
0: So he has very good control over yeah, his, his super strokes. Super control over
3: everything. And a lot of these
2: guys, it's just this born innate sense. Yeah. You know, you can't even teach it. So, Thank you, Rugboy. Let's sidebar. Very good. This goes into the next <laughs> sidebar, which is the fact that despite all of Wally Wood's contributions, despite the fact that San, Stan Lee would – San, <laughs> I'm going to have to edit all this shit out. Sand Lee. Sand <laughs> Lee. Stan Lee. Stan Lee, They would call him Kid Daredevil himself Wally Wood, right? Oh. There's no – he gets no credit in Marvel's Netflix show. The estate of Wally Wood in an open letter has fired a shot uh, across the bows of Marvel and Netflix asking for credit for his contributions. Basically, they think his name should be up there. It should say created by Stan Lee, Bill Everett, and Wally Wally Wood. Wood. And they have lots of uh, comic book legends and quotes to support this. And they credit a lot of comic book artists in the beginning of the Daredevil show. There's no mention of Wally Wood.
3: Oh, it sucks. Why do you think that is?
2: Uh... Again, he was kind of hard to
3: work with. Maybe. Was he a dick and you're just like, fuck him?
2: This is what happened. When he, when he took over this dying book, first of all, he found it absurd that a guy called Man Without Fear is wearing yellow, the yeah. color of fear. He's like, I'm fucking changing that. And He changed this without even asking for permission from Marvel. He just did it. Yeah. He, told, he just fucking did it. The balls
3: on this guy.
0: He's like, this is not going to work. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, let's be serious. The red and
3: yellow costume was not going to work. No, it doesn't look like anything like a Daredevil. It, it
0: looks like a cheap, uh, it's, it's like a knockoff Iron Man costume.
3: Remember that guy that D-Man, that was like the uh, knockoff of Daredevil, the yellow suit guy? Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking Wait, about, right, Neymar? douchebag man? No. Douche man? No, there's a guy named D-Man. Look D-man. him up. Look it up. Okay, hold on. You guys look up D-Man and he doesn't have, the D does not stand for dick.
2: <laughs> D-Man. I think Demolition it's Demolition Man. man. Yeah. Demolition Man.
3: I think it's D-Man. Oh, oh wow. yeah. Oh, I
2: do remember this guy. Wait, he was. A, yeah, where? It's, it's a Wolverine Daredevil. It's Wolverine Daredevil. <laughs> Demolition Man. What was his story? I forgot. I kind of remember this guy. Holy fuck.
0: Yeah, put this in the show notes
2: Demolition Dunphy. Dennis Dunphy. Demolition Man. D Man. Dennis Dunphy. Rugboy again. Nineteen uh, 19- out of the pot. Ni- oh, this. I remember Captain America in like the mid 80s.
0: Okay. That's where I remember him from. Scroll down to his power set. And- <laughs> devilish Man's power set is... Uh, Skilled aircraft pilot, excellent hand-to-hand combat, superhuman <laughs> strength. And stamina. What the hell? All right. Cool.
2: All right, wait. Fuck off, douchebag, man. We got This is a great sidebar. Yeah, Check this out. Check out um, what the real... Con- and this is why you asked why did he leave. He leaves... By the way, he leaves Marvel in a year uh, from starting Daredevil. Here's why. Again, it's... Stan Lee's Marvel method of comic books. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the artists are being more and more – they're being called on to plot and draw the book for no credit. They're co-writing these books and not getting any extra credit or extra pay for this extra work. Stan Lee would come in drop the words again. Wallywood leaves Marvel after a year because of this practice. But – Woods, so Woods, from issue five to like 11, Woods is plotting a lot of this. His, one of the biggest contributions that he does that's still in it to this day is the character development choices he made to define the essence of Daredevil are still in Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's run through every. I mean, Frank Miller still used the same uh these characters. So he
0: really did. Just he create
2: defined the yeah, he, Daredevil. He, he, he gave he the fundamentally iconic. changed the, the character. If, if yeah. you go and read the books by by issue four, this was not a well drawn character at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, they drew him like shit. That's a I, no. Company. I'm
2: talking about written story written, wise. Okay, yeah, he yeah. was not a well-drawn story character. It was very thin. When, when, when we're talking about
1: art, and I know like, it draw is confusing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Wally Wood comes in with his plotting, makes Daredevil who he is. Okay. So Roy Thomas and Dennis O'Neill and others are speaking out in favor of Wood's name, and they just want to add There's his David name to the sense. credits. Okay. So in it the could,
3: year go. What ahead, happens is boy. time passes and people forget that he was a prick, and they're yeah. like, "Oh, we should get his due." But like during the time when yeah. he was a prick and didn't want to work with anybody, they're yeah. like, "Fuck him!" Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. They, now, like people are kind of letting it slide. It's just like
2: time that. has passed, and you're like, "Okay, yeah. you're." You I mean, it. what's well, the
0: people that thought he was a prick that are starting to just die or? get old and not care anymore yeah and then
2: you actually get to see the man's contributions for what they are you
0: see this in in just this, this is another sidebar but you see this in in baseball like pete rose he's not in the hall of fame because he's a dick basically yeah he gambled on baseball, but he's a dick, and he right. didn't, no one ever got along with him. But as time goes on, and people forget that They're he's like, like
2: wow, like, he was really good. He was really he good. He shouldn't be more sympathetic he, to yeah. him. Yeah, you he was a there. great athlete. Yeah,
0: just like this, he yeah. was a great artist. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we not include him? Yeah,
2: personality goes yeah. a huge way with yeah. these things.
0: You know, yeah, personality will get you fucked up. Fucked it'll, over. it'll fuck
2: you up your your <laughs> legacy. But so in the year he was on Daredevil, though, he t- made it a monthly hit. Uh, turn sales around. Uh, so part of the other things, like I said, the red suit. But another thing he did is he drew character model turnaround sheets for all the main characters and designed the schematic of Daredevil's Billy Club grappling hook device. Now, no other such character design model sheets are known to have been produced for any Marvel character by any other creator in the 60s. What is a,
0: a character design model sheet?
2: Basically, it's uh,
3: – a like uh, it's like a bible of how to draw the character it show, oh. it's a style it sheet it shows but like sh- the blueprints and the inner workings of things and how things work it shows so, like every b- how does how does his billy club come apart yes oh. how does it actually work like nobody gave a shit you just like, like he, just did it. he
2: literally it designed schematics work. for a fake fictional device that you
0: know oh, the, I how see it actually saying. works but he also it's the, the schem- so yeah, it is schematic. schematics yeah the so. model
2: sheet is also you draw the character front back right left this is what you refer to when the next guy would get the book be like mm-hmm. here's what these guys should look like,
3: like nope. that's what it looks like that's probably. stuff that they do in movies now yeah. when they make a movie they draw the shit out of everything they and, have to like yeah. draw everything that you, you might not even notice this thing for cartoons yeah things. a lot
2: for yeah. animations but uh, surprisingly at the time nobody did this in comic books wally was the first who's like here's how everything should look from now on boom here's my style uh he he also created mr fear and Stiltman while his run on daredevil
0: I think Stillman okay. might be in the next season of
2: Daredevil. Yeah. He also – he's the guy that developed the visual representation of the radar sets, the contour lines, the way we know Dare, Daredevil's visual blind radar. That's Wally Wood. Hmm. Now, you can, it can be said that his interlocking DD logo that he put on his chest inspired the nickname DD. You know, in the writing, they started going, hey, DD. But like he never had it there.
0: On his chest? Yeah. He had, he had do double Ds?
2: Double Ds on his chest.
1: There you
0: go.
2: Whoa. He, <laughs> <meat winner. laughs> so his conf- continued influence on the character uh, is historic. And Frank Miller picked up on it. Um, his last return to Marvel, he actually inked over Frank Miller on Daredevil 164. Okay. It was a historic return to that. So the, the basic afterwards. point
0: is that he yeah. – he, he leaves issue 11, Daredevil.
2: comes back issue 164. For his, like, he that's created crazy.
0: what we all know as yes. Daredevil at this
2: yes. time. Yeah. Yes.
0: The, icon, the red right.
2: costume, everything. Right. That is. That's what He should get credit. Okay. End of sidebar, back to Wood. So, in 1964, Marvel has three superstar artists. Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Wally Wood. Stan Lee's Marvel method was starting to wear thin on all of them. So, this is the time where, again, they realize they're co-writing it. No credit. They want more control. Wally Wood leaves. Soon after, Ditko leaves Marvel. Soon after, the great Jack the King Kirby leaves Marvel. It's a big exodus. They all want to do their own stuff. Wally Wood is the first of them to... To get his own creator, own stuff. To beat them all to a punch. In 1965, with writer Len Brown, they create Thunder Agents for Tower Comics. There was, um, in the reboot in 2011, the new 52 reboot, DC has a series. And then IDW actually has the properties now and they're going to continue to do it. But Thunder Agents, and I'll, I'll show you where it gets into play. They do Thunder Agents, another series called Dynamo. And others between 65 and 69. So for this, in Tower Comics now, after leaving Marvel, he plotted, drew, and wrote most of the stories. And he got his buddies from EC Comics jobs. Wally Wood is loving this because now he's kind of become the Stan Lee at Tower Comics. Mm -hmm. He's calling the shots. He has the control. So he does a lot of his most striking work of his career during this time. And his wife, Titania, is coloring on Thunder Agents also. Okay. I got another quirky sidebar. Hold on. a Nerd sidebar. During this time, has anybody heard of this thing? This is really weird. Uh, it's called the Disneyland Memorial Orgy poster.
3: I have that. never heard of it. Allegiant. And I just I'm looking at it now this, and yeah fucked up shit. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> Rugboy so is... is this an actual Disneyland?
0: Uh,
2: well, Disney let film? me explain what it is. Rugboy, I want you to describe portions of this illustration. Link will be in the show notes listener, or jockador.com. I really eating. don't know if
3: I can do this without popping a rod man. Right?
2: Uh, it's all sorts <laughs> of... Boners. So in, there's a, a magazine, an underground magazine called The Realist. Uh, it was a pioneering underground magazine intended as a grown-up version of Mad Magazine. Actually, published out of the same office.
0: A grown-up version
2: of Mad Magazine? Yeah. They're it's trying it's to,
3: pornographic, basically. Uh,
2: that's pretty much okay. adult-rated. So in 1967, Wood, uncredit, uncredited, illustrates this poster called Disneyland Memorial Orgy Poster. The poster, I'll read this from Wikipedia, depicts a number of copyrighted Disney characters in various unsavory activities, including sex acts and drug use, with huge dollar signs radiating from Cinderella's castle. Wood himself, as late as 1981- when asked who did that drawing, said only, I'd rather not say anything about that. It was the most pirated drawing in history. Everyone was printing copies of that. I understood some people got busted for selling it. I always thought Disney stuff was pretty sexy. Snow White, you know. <laughs> he says that. He's all been a freak. This shit
3: is fucking crazy. Dude,
2: so Disney takes no legal action against the publisher of The realist Krasner, or uh, him. But they do so a publisher of a Blacklight version of the poster... Who used the image without Krasner's
0: permission? The is, listener's gonna have to look at this poster. Uh, the,
2: show the case notes. is settled out of court. Rugboy, describe parts of the it's a black okay, and white illustration. Let me,
3: let me try and even Okay, so basically it's like a montage where like there's just a million things going on. You got Pluto taking a piss on uh Mickey Mouse's face. <laughs> yes. Uh you got uh Pinocchio's nose like getting long, looking at uh a naked Tinkerbell. <laughs> you got uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie looking up the uh, Donald Duck's girlfriend's uh, dress. What is that dwarf doing to Snow White in the front there? The dwarves are running a train on Snow oh, White. I think so. Oh, is that all? And, um, oh shit! I, I'm just look. I'm describing this Who's shit to the shit scene. Is that, I, is I, that I,
0: Aurora on her back, getting about
3: to get laid? Yeah, Aurora, yeah. and yeah, he's taking off the glass oh, slipper. Oh, oh you did, Cinderella, ma- Cinderella. You
2: mentioned Goofy banging uh, Minnie there. Yeah, Where'd point that
0: out
3: right over
2: here. Oh yeah, lower left corner, he's people. He's doing. He's doing. Oh, one of the kids is watching. So uh,
3: yeah, Goofy's getting goofy.
2: You know, this was <laughs> this was just a weird side stop. Um, but the, this the the X rated comics uh, comes back a little bit later in his career. Here. Like we don't really see penises. No, or, no, or, or, or vaginas. That's the thing. It's tame, it's but it's suggest- not tame. But for the time, this is 1967. This is very uh, racy for 1967. Yeah, we don't see like you don't see
3: nipples. You don't see. You think any, this has like, anything uh, to do
0: with the like the free love in, in the sixties
3: and all that? Yeah, stuff? it was just rebelling like rebelling. against the big. Yeah. Uh, I know. There's no cock and balls. There's no. no hatchet wounds. There's just like a positioning and like maybe some butts, like a, a suggested of a butt. You never get a full butt, like a crack. Like you just you don't get, get a get little butt. butt. Yeah, you never get some ass crack in there. No, you get like leg that shows the butt, but you don't actually see. You know. Yeah. She could be wearing underwear under that. You don't know.
2: (laughs) All right. And the sidebar. Uh, At this point in his life, Wally Wood has mastered drawing comics. He's mastered writing comics. He's mastered editing comics. He's mastered baiting comics. He's mastered baiting comics. But, oh, shit. He wants to master publishing comics. While establishing this line at Tower Comics, which, again, was Thunder Agent, Steinem, a bunch of others, he starts contributing stories to a little independent magazine called Wit's End for one of his admirers, Dan Adkins. But Wood sees that this is a self-published book without editorial interference. I could do anything. I need to own this. He invites Adkins to his studio uh, to join his studio. Adkins quits his day job at an ad agency. He's all in, excited to work for his idol, Wally Wood is now a publisher of independent comic book uh, magazine. That's
0: not Just like that.
2: So this was a place where he had pet projects that he didn't want any editor to mess with or any greedy publisher to to destroy. From his youth, he was putting his pet love projects in wit's end. And he was loving this because it was his creations, his way. By the time the first issue hit in 1966, Wally had convinced others to join like his buddy Steve Ditko and and contribute stories. Now, he's doing all this work while still working at Tower Comics, running, like, a full-time...
0: So he's running himself into the ground. Oh, yeah, okay. a little bit.
2: But That's he happily worked countless unpaid hours for wit's end, because it, he could truly do his own creator-owned stuff. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, it was his pet project. Yeah. I mean, uh, you all know everybody, he gets to do his passion, and you would do it for free. Like, mm-hmm. we do this show. Right.
3: Oh, yeah. shit! <laughs> oh, is it free? Yeah. Oh, oh
2: no, you're not no. getting paid, Rock Boy. We didn't tell you that? Not even in sandwiches. I'll send you sandwiches. Oh, I'm sorry. No sandwiches. No sandwiches. So this Wits End book was very uh, inspirational for lots of artists because at this time in the late 60s, they saw this book and they realized that they could own their own creations. Didn't make a lot of money. Tower had folded by the end of the 60s. Woods had to take a step back. He hands over Wits End to his friend Bill Pearson, who had worked with him in the studio. And Wally Wood has to go back to making shitty comics to make rent. Mm. Mm. So, again, late 60s, he's still doing work for Creepy, for Eerie, for Harvey, for little gems, little backup features in random comics that would ultimately, a lot of times, be better than the feature story. A lot of work. And a lot of people are like, how could he do all this work? Well, he had a huge, stable of collaborators in his studio. He had lots of young assistants that he would make them do all the shitty work. He, basically, the erasing the uh the cleaning up but at the same time he would share all of his tricks of the trade with these young assistants like what a perfect teacher to have you're like yeah i'll erase and letter your shit and then he would share his awesome storytelling and are like I, I, that would have been so great
3: <laughs> i've actually know, been privy deep. to some of this stuff oh um, yeah some of the people you know from you know in the convention circuit in the comic book circuit uh, You know, you always hear about Wally. I learned this from Wally Wood. Wally Wood taught me this or I was doing that and I learned that from Wally Wood. So it was very common that some of these guys that are now in their 50s and 60s now or, you know, when they were, you know, young hotshot kids yep. trying to break in. Wally Wood would be the guy that they would um, kind of gravitate towards because he was willing to, like, work with these guys.
2: And I think that was rare. He was willing to share a lot. And, and that's why we see – Do
0: you think he was sharing any of his liquor?
2: Well, he should have probably. <laughs> he shouldn't have kept it for himself. But despite having all these assistants, Wood was always in control of the final product. The quality, the quantity was always consistent. and It was always Wally Wood no matter who touched it. So then again, it's early 70s. Wally has to turn to inking to pay the bills. Uh, at this time, he's popping up at Marvel DC, literally just doing an issue here, an issue there, very spotty. Very unfocused. He's getting steady work, but he's not happy with his career.
0: Right. He's just doing everyth- all those sorts of stuff. He's just
2: doing grunt work. He feels like he's a hired hand. He hates that. His migraines get worse. His drinking gets worse. His drinking returns. He's gone sober. Not anymore. No. And what it did to his art was interesting because like we just talked about, you would think that this much drinking and drawing, your work will get sloppy. Right, Rugboy? You would think it would yeah. just get lazy. Absolutely. Now, Wally was so amazing that it did not affect him that way. His work didn't get sloppy; it was still slick, but it got boring. Mm-hmm. There's no more surprises.
3: Yeah, he kind of just like uh, resigned to like very mundane setups and poses and stuff like that.
2: He was coasting. He was calling it in. He was only in his mid 40s when he should have probably been at the height of his career, and he's playing it safe. Still beautiful artwork. But stiff, uninspired. In fact, because he was drinking more, couldn't keep up with the drawing pace, he had to rely on his studio more. He would teach his assistants to draw exactly like him. And many times he even pull out old work and trace right over it. So now literally everything is starting to look the same. That sounds like shit. Yes. His health is failing in the early 70s. His personal life is a mess again. Smoking, drinking all-nighters, they're all starting to catch up with him even more. He had high blood pressure. His eyesight was going. As his health faded, he felt more and more that he was just a hired hand in an industry he no longer respected.
3: Yeah, like he started doing, like, porn.
2: Yes. Really? At this time, he is so fed up with mainstream publishers, he starts drawing hardcore X-rated comics. For a notorious Ring. sex paper called A Screw. Geek boner. And uh, there's a bunch of various spin-offs.
0: Pull up some of these husk-rated comics. So
2: Wood <laughs> enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Why?
2: Because they let him keep his copyrights. He had artistic freedom there. In porn.
0: Yeah.
3: I mean, of all places. Like, no one gives so a this shit. Might, we might get some bad image. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, that is pretty X-rated.
3: Yeah, so but see, pretty much he's scraping the bottom of the barrel now. Like yeah. he's like doing whatever like work. I mean, maybe he liked it. Maybe I don't he, know if they he have these.
2: Oh, here's everything. screw. This is the. Uh, oh wow, that's the book. Um, huh. But it, you know, it just shows you like you can see this downward spiral gradually get worse. Anyways. I was
0: actually scared when you typed in Wallywood X-rated Google <laughs> and t- images. We, I had no idea. <laughs> what what did you gonna think come was going to pop up? I had no idea. I mean, that's just the, the name Wallywood X-rated. Oh
2: well, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm
0: sure there's a porn with
2: that. <laughs> yeah. He's in his fifties now and he really seems to himself that he's going to be a work for hire guy the rest of his life, never getting any yep. control back. He's really down on his luck. So in a crazy fucking bold move for the time, he decides to take all of his money Start his own comic book company. This is all, ultimately, that's all he wanted. However, this is a bad time to start a comic book. Just the industry is in a slump. People are like, you are stupid. This is the worst time to start a comic book company. Uh, so his plan was to do like crazy deluxe comics. 36 pages, 10 by 12 inches, four issues each on slick paper for a cover price of $3.50. When comics were wow. going for 35 cents at the time.
0: Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. So 100% markup.
2: He's like, fuck it. He goes, I know this isn't going to oh, sell much.
0: more than 100% Mark.
2: He hoped that people would enjoy the quality. That 10, is- is thousand percent Yeah. He hoped that his fans, his hardcore fans would really appreciate that he's putting some quality, some love into this and buy it. But that's crazy. So despite how shitty the industry was in the late 70s, like Wally had a dream. He was going to see it happen. The only problem with this great dream that Wally Wood had is it was too late for him and for the industry. His health was way bad that he could not keep this pace up. Had he done this like 10 years ago, it probably would have been really successful. 10 years earlier, his vision got so bad he couldn't draw anymore. Imagine you're an artist, and I know, uh, Rug Boy, you we could relate like how terrifying it is as a visual artist to lose your eyesight.
3: That would suck because, that, yeah. you know, there's that's your window, like yeah. you can't draw without seeing, yeah. I mean, yeah. you can, but there's some guy on the internet that supposedly paints blind. What but I, I don't buy it, Did you see, I don't no. know. Wow, look it up. There's some guy that paints. He's blind. Wow! And uh, I feel like he could see, and he's just lying. But you we'll know.
0: <laughs> never know. I'm glad you brought that up because Imran's just been telling us this long, this, long. Hold long, on, long yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, this gets sad though. Uh, in 1978, he suffers more strokes. Thing gets worse. His colleague and friend Bill Pearson, who who took over the company at the time, he was still talking to publishers and trying to convince them that Wally was still a functioning artist when. Pretty, he was pretty much completely disabled
0: this guy so this guy's blind at like 40 50 years old F- yeah
2: 50, oh, wow. this is mid50 early 50s like wow. the drinking and the, the smoking has done this to him and the hard work the last thing he worked on to pay the bills was a hardcore sex comic called gangbang and he barely did any of that himself everyone had to help him he could hardly draw. And it was hey, just, could you draw
3: this girl's tit for me? I know, can you draw, can you, you draw the other
2: tit? I'll draw the nipple. All right, we're good over put here. big pepperoni ones yeah, on but, but what a sad finale <laughs> for, a, like, amazing, influential artist. Like, that was his last piece of work. Let's get sad. It's going to get sadder before it gets happier. His I don't kid- know how much more I can take. Everybody. Listen, it gets sadder. When his kidneys start failing soon, the doctor's like, you don't have a lot of time. We want to put you on a dialysis machine. Being the ultimate control freak that Wally Wood was, he hated this idea of being hooked up to a machine. He refused to surrender this final indignity. He was last seen October 31st, 1981. Sometime between then, November 3rd, Wally Wood shoots himself in the head with his forty four caliber pistol. Oh, in essence, his final moment of control yeah he's like i'm
0: going out himself i'm going going out out the way i want to go out 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 on my own turn my own hand maybe not the way i want to go out but i'm going out
2: luckily lots of his work is in print ec publishers probably has done the best job in preserving and reprinting virtually every page of Wally Wood artwork that ec did not only that publisher bill gaines saved all the original artwork From Wollywood and others at EC. Like, they were great publishers. They paid great. They Mm -hmm. treated you with respect. They saved your shit. They reprinted all of Hollywood's work. You could get it all. I put this note in here because it reminded me of when I started art school. And uh, it, it brought up something. Wood never understood something. I also used to think about being a great artist and creating great art. Like, when you're young and brash and you're in your 20s, you're like, you have to suffer to produce great art. You can't be a good artist without suffering.
3: That's like the Kurt Cobain School of Arts.
2: it's self, you it, it makes you become self-destructive and you feel like that your self-destruction is enhancing your your work you know you're not taking care of yourself right you're like this I need this this is the only way I can't but you don't and then now that I'm older, <laughs> you don't realize that you don't have to be self-destructive There are many examples of amazing artists who have lived happy it's the balance the right. work and art and life balance. Happy life's gone for decades, done great work.
3: I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, like, look, there's something to be said about the uh, the torture that you go through, that emotional depth that helps maybe add a little gravitas. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just fucking Ooh, gravitas. Wow. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. What about yours? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, like, it, it, you feel like, okay, you live life, you have ex- life experience, and you could put that into your work. Like, um... But um, it seems I think romantic. at point, yeah. it seems at a certain point, you, you got to let go of that. Yeah. It reminds yeah. me of
0: a lot of uh, being the jock that I am. Yeah. When you join like a frat and you get hazed yeah. and you, you get shit on all the time. Yeah. And then a lot of the frat guys look back on it and they're like, why do we do that? No, well, they look back on it like, oh, that was necessary. That was a defining I, I, moment. That was a defining moment to create this friendship. But then. You look at like then you look at like other people that have never had to go through that, and, and they have they live just as great lives yeah. lives and have great friendships and right. great bonds too.
3: That's a good jock uh, analogy there. Yeah. Yeah. I have a I have another theory about Wally Wood is yeah. that he wanted to be the guy in charge. Yeah. All right. And when you're not in charge, yeah, you feel like oppressed. All right. You feel like you don't want to listen to anyone. You don't want to fuck it, and you you feel like everything, no matter in what way that. Uh, it's working to your benefit that if somebody's oppressing you or keeping you down yeah, or, yeah. Or, or or you know the right way to do things and that's a very big sickness with people and that's you know and um that was his downfall I and a lot but of his, those
2: people like you're absolutely right it's romantic when you're younger this feeling of need for control tied in it feeds the alcoholism too alcoholism feeds the control issue
3: feeds the alcoholism i, now, I know th- i i know that that kind of behavior, you know, yeah, yeah. firsthand, uh, yeah, so yeah, so it's it's something that um unfortunately was his undoing because if he would have just enjoyed the act of drawing, yeah, and not worried about the rest of it, I think he would have been. The still thing here. is too
0: is he, he probably when he drank probably a shit ton, obviously, and if you you have that personality where you think you're in control, then you think that the alcohol isn't really affecting you at all. Yeah, exactly. you, you think you you can overpower the exactly. alcohol. Your, your mind. The mind well, control is stronger. freaks yeah. are.
3: I'm sure, like somebody tried to tell him to stop drinking. He was He's like, "Yeah, you. go fuck yourself. Yeah, go yeah, fuck
0: yeah. yourself. I know what I'm doing." And, and I, know I think how
2: you'll find that control freaks oftentimes are the worst alcoholics. And if he had just let go a little bit, imagine the amazing art he could have done.
3: Right, and the alcohol but probably the One of the great things about Wally Wood, though, is even though he was such a control freak, he did like see like his ego was like he should be in charge, so he should. He wasn't afraid to pass down his knowledge. He wanted to, more people to be like him. Yeah. So that's where, yes. like, that, these that, things, yes. like, these things, like these. These twenty-two panels. Yeah. So this is where we get you into next. In. Here's
2: one of his great contributions. You're absolutely right. The best thing was that he was sharing his his tips. He was sharing what he learned. He he can be you know he can credit to creating a lot of these house styles
3: for the book. I don't think it, I don't think it was out of kindness. It nope. was out of ego. Yeah. He's no, like, it was this like this is how you should do fucking it.
2: Fucking do it like this every time because his way was the right way. He knew he's like this, but. There is a – here's how the story goes. There's an image called Wally Wood's 22 panels that always work. It's a very – it's kind of like an underground image that's been passed around. I've seen it. Because Wally Wood struggled to be as efficient as possible and is often low-paying work for hire. So, right, you're not getting paid a lot. You want to move quickly because that's the only way you're going to make money. Over time, he had created these series of layout techniques uh, sketched on pieces of paper, which he would tape up near his drawing table. There were visual notes kind of. Collected on three pages, and they reminded Wood and some of his assistants of the various layouts and compositional techniques to keep his pages dynamic and interesting.
0: Do you have a link to this? You'll have a link to this in the show notes? Yeah,
2: I'll put this image and a link to you don't, this you don't in the have show to go
0: notes. Over the whole-
2: Yeah. Well, basically, it's like – so this uh, – it's a three-page, 24 – 22-panel image of every awesome panel and how to use it in comics for – General dialogue, kind of like boring things and different shots, close ups, you know, big head, extreme close up, the two shot. Uh, it's the-
3: one of these things that probably influenced like these how to draw books. Yeah. Right. How to draw comics books.
2: Again, the Casablanca of comic books. Like everything that you guys use as a language that comic books writers, artists use is right here. He's telling you, look, you could frame it. You could have no borders. You could have a silhouette in the distance.
0: So just to take away, you know, obviously i've been and you know recapping what to take away what do you take away rugboy from wally wood as far as art
3: well the thing is is that he really analyzed comics he really analyzed what he was doing and he was actually uh you know more of like a i, I can't tell you how many times i've heard of his influence mm-hmm. so i think that not only is he an amazing artist like we haven't heard of him a lot because his superhero stuff is like sporadic but yeah. Um, if you look at his artwork he was a master so but his influence the fact that he would go and go no this is how you do this do it this way and uh, here's my method to draw a line here's my method to draw a circle like this is how you do this and then all of a sudden you have people down the line passing this information down to other artists Um, he was a big influence
2: because
3: his persona was Mm -hmm. the influence
2: that legacy and that information still is passed down to this day like it's uh.
0: There's a ton, He has a ton of influence, but we don't hear about him because he never was on a, a big. He Marvel. didn't really do
2: a lot of superhero comics, and, comic
0: and he doesn't really get any credit for the Daredevil. Yeah, he died, he
2: died young. He died young.
3: He was a dick. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, you know, huh.
2: again, same thing. Hard to work with, and now people are like, "Wow, he did a lot for comics." But That's that, funny. but the whole Daredevil thing blew my mind. I was like, he really needs to be credited on that show.
3: Yeah, that was one of the main things that. You know, people know about him from the news and stuff, like mainstream shit. So to recap,
0: because we, that's the last. That's number guy. six,
3: folks. So we had 10, 10, we had Gil Kane,
0: 9, Alex Toth, 8, Steve Ditko, 7, Frank Frazetta, and then 6, Wally Wood.
2: Wally Wood. I got one more bit about the comic book ages, and then we're going to wrap this shit up. What do you guys think? I think that's a great idea. Okay. <laughs>
0: Rugboy, we we know that he asked in the last volume, volume of this, one. what started the Bronze Age? And Imran, as per usual, does a ton of work and figures out when the Bronze Age started. nerded out,
2: went down a <laughs> rabbit hole. But that was a really good question because I did not know. Right. Uh, so real quick, Golden Age starts the debut of Superman Action Comics 1938. Everybody knows. Yes. Yes. Golden Age kind of ends again with, before mentioned, Frederick Wortham, Seduction of the Innocent, Comic Code, kind of kills that and... That leads to the Silver Age in 1956, which begins with the publication of Showcase Number Four, which introduces the modern version of the flesh. Okay. There's, two, there's two notes to where the Silver Age ends. One, somebody says in 1970, when Julius Schwartz, Julie Schwartz, handed over Green Lantern to Denny O'Neill Neil Adams, mm-hmm. that combined with 1973, Gwen Stacy dies. In a story arc called The Night Gwen Stacy Died. The Death of Gwen Stacy. Those
0: are the two storylines. The Death of Gwen Stacy is often considered the end of the Silver Age. Also, Green Lantern, um, that that team up with Green Arrow is also kind of that that gray area. So
2: we're in about 1970. Okay. Now comes what is known as the Bronze Age. So what's tricky about this is there's no single event really that marks this. But a bunch of things that happened. Like we Mm. said, April, the issue of Green Lantern and Green Arrow – with Daniel O'Neill, Neil Adams, that those things ended one age and simultaneously started the other age. So that's quoted as the start of the Bronze Age because they focus on like his poverty and weird shit. Jack Kirby also leaves Marvel and joins DC around this time. That's oh, also wow. mentioned as a, a, the beginning of the Bronze Age. This also Bronze Age also basically coincided with the end of the careers of these veteran writers and artists, kind of leaving, and the new guys. Coming in or being promoted to higher positions in management at the mainstream publishers.
3: So it's kind of like the end of uh, one guard. It was of, the changing and- of
2: the card. Yeah, it was the yeah. changing of the card. Uh, they scaled back some superhero publications. Also, they, they reference a lot of new genres like horror and sword and sorcery books were also being created. Hmm. Now, another thing that starts the Bronze Age, and we touched on this briefly, is the creation of the direct market way to sell comic books. You know... B- Subscription? the, the stri- Yeah, the distribution channels. It had changed from mass market newsstands to specialty comic book stores. What this allowed was smaller print publishers to get in the game, to get their books in the market. They couldn't do that when it was just the newsstands. It was too big. Mm-hmm. But now this led to more diverse books.
3: So comic book stores now begin to emerge.
2: Yeah, and, you, you uh, get the direct market way. You know, you could send it directly to the comic book stores. And you can send smaller runs and be independent. Right. And it doesn't cost as much. Now, where the Bronze Age ended is up for debate. Like I mentioned, some people think it never ended. That's technically it's still, still, still Bronze
0: Age. going.
3: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like that that lumps in with like the 85, um, you know, and even the 70s. I feel like they're almost the same. Like, I don't think there's enough of a difference. Yeah. I was, see more of a difference in the 90s than yeah. anything yeah, else. Yeah, I would say so
0: too. Yeah,
2: it kind of comes back, uh, but – the This is demarked by the completion of Crisis on Infinite Earths right. by DC, which revised the company, canceled some lines, rebooted some lines. Also, Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons came out. Batman of the Dark Knight returns by Frank Miller,
0: comes Do out. Do you think maybe the end of the Bronze Age would be considered when all these graphic novels start coming out where they, they start going into this where you can collect them?
2: Or maybe event. Events. Because also for Marvel's side, they end the Bronze Age – by with secret wars.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean by the graphic novels, the event comics thing, Yeah, event thing. crossover comics. Stuff purely made just to sell a big like a big like a summer line of books. A little bit. Like this that. is
2: again, you're right. This is also and leading into the modern dark age, they they reference the the speculative nature of the industry where now people are buying to collect but they're printing too much. Right. right. So yeah. it's kind of a it's a vague the modern dark age, if it exists, if you guys think it exists, starts yeah, about I that think time.
3: I, in my opinion I think that the modern age starts a lot later. Yeah. I think it does because uh, you, you still have at this point okay this is where I, this is what I think and uh, you can tell me if I'm an idiot which I probably am. <laughs> um I think when the the driving force between buying comics is speculation and then also the artist on the title yeah. rather than the actual content of the book. Yeah. I think that's when you get to the dark age.
2: Oh, okay. So you think it's more nineties, mid nineties. Yeah. I yeah. Say,
3: because yeah. like at this point in time, they're still uh, going about their business, doing comics the same way that they've always that's been doing. That's true. Them. It's just, okay. It, yes. No. That there's a direct market now, but I don't think it changes inherently how they make comics. No, I think after the secret wars thing and all that other stuff yeah, where people start following John Byrne and they start following Neil Adams. That's and a they good start point. following, all of these artists that are named. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, we need gimmicks and artists. And then, uh, you know, Trump up the artists. Let's let's trump up the artists. Let's like talk about how great the artist is. And then all of a sudden the books take a turn. Like now all of a sudden the comics are not the same Yeah, as like, I could get a 1988 X-Men and it's still just as cool as a 19, like 80 X-Men. Right. You know, it's like not that different.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That makes
3: sense.
2: Uh, so I mean, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, you know, you also it makes you think of like the rise of the anti-hero around this time, where you had like your Punisher, your Wolverine, oh, your Daredevil, Miller's Daredevil. They were all gritty Batman, dark anti-heroes. I feel like that's its own
0: almost. And it's almost its own. It's I think there's always, yeah. I mean, there's always yeah. been
3: anti-heroes since Batman, but like, you know, I think that that that's what changed for me. I saw like a complete change in the, in the temperature of comics because of it was the rise the of the art, independent the artists, publishers. Yeah the artists and the independent publishers and the gimmicks. Those are the things that defined the nineties for me.
2: And then meantime, Marvel had like a huge X-Men franchise in the nineties. That was kind of killing it. That kind of tied into all of this. So that one is a little bit, it's still debatable. It's, uh, it's mushy.
3: Yeah. Yeah, It's still happening. I don't think that there's like a real, like official person to tell us when the fucking ages in or end. No, No. you can't say it until later. No, (laughs) yeah, it's not as easy as history later on. Yeah. So you're saying that the bronze age begins because of, uh, the direct market.
0: Well, well, that and the turn in like in the comics becoming more the writers and serious. artists, uh,
2: the veterans leaving the new guys being promoted, being less fanciful and fantastic. Well, Everyone
0: says the death of Gwen Stacy. So it's like that, that's serious where it's You're killing characters. Li- Nobody killed,
2: yeah. killed main characters before. Yeah. You were like, Oh, this shit just got serious. Right. This ain't just cartoons anymore. Right.
3: Yeah. And then you had like the watchman come out as like almost like a acknowledgement yep, of that. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It was like that was like the swan song of that era. least because, when, as soon as you start lampooning it or start like doing a like, a, I agree because like an after, analysis of it. Yeah,
2: because as soon as Dark Knight Batman Dark Knight Returns comes on, that's it. It's over because from here on out, everything's gonna be derivative of Watchmen, of Dark Knight, of and everything Watchmen that was
3: basically taking what that that Bronze Age feeling was yeah. and distilled it into one graphic novel. Yeah.
2: He was like, Here's like what it used to be to be superheroes, and
3: here's what you know will it right. is now and and Who anyway. knows what we're go- who knows where we're going from here.
2: It's gonna it seems cyclical, like it goes back and forth.
3: Yeah. You right. it goes from rebellion they, so we to we like do all show on this.
0: It's, I like, know. it's like
2: fashion. Fuck off. We've been talking for five hours.
0: Now if you're still with us, listener.
3: <laughs> Let's, wrap, the Let's wrap
0: this shit up. Let's wrap this shit up. Yeah, your
3: pubes are now gray. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should mention a place to hang your cape real quick. That's and then the we're website out. we're on. Yeah. Um, a place to hang your cape. And they have great articles. yes ap2hyc.com. It's ap2hyc.com. the number
2: two, HYC. Yep. Com. Yes. And they have really insightful articles. Great. And, uh, they have an article about the Fantastic Four.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Well, I have to see that movie and we're going to talk <laughs> uh, about it. But
2: yeah, they give like comic books a second look and go back. And a lot
0: of but, independent stuff too.
2: Independent. It's very unique. Independent reviews. Check it out. ap2hyc.com. And you will see us there and our friends uh, Geek Course. Mm -hmm. This is also another good podcast.
0: If you want to give us some feedback.
2: Hey, if you found yourself yelling at the show or trying to chime into the conversation when it's just a recording and we can't hear you, this is what you do. Pull out your phone, record a little audio memo, and send it to us. You could do it right from the podcast show notes. Click the SpeakPipe link or go to speakpipe.com slash nerd. You can leave audio comment from your phone, your iPad, your laptop, and we will get it, and you will be on the show. That's how you're part of the show. That's simple.
0: It's easy. Also, you can email us at showatjockandnerd.com. Tweet at us at jockandnerdcast or Facebook, facebook.com slash jockandnerd. Also, we've interviewed Parviz, Parvizy. Parviz, clamor us as well. We're on there. It's
2: a good, that's a good episode. Episode 12. Um, and always uh, subscribe. Please subscribe and rate us in iTunes. It you, be, can be, you can get me on Twitter. Oh, really yeah. oh yeah. Let's not forget about Rugboy. That.
0: Really yeah. Rugboy.
2: At really rug boy. You know what? I think I have to make a new intro uh, that adds his name when he's on. So uh, like our music, intro music. Oh, yeah. Because he's staff.
0: He is staff. Rugboy is oh staff. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's good. They're regular. Um, I got a
2: staff infection. <laughs> he's got a staff.
0: Oh, shit. Well, <laughs> <you> got, <laughs> don't forget, like Imran said, subscribe in <laughs> iTunes. Give us a rating, a nice review. Yeah. Also, you can do that on jockander.com slash review. But most importantly, just tell a friend.
2: Tell a person. Yeah. Tell your best friend. Uh, we hope. Tell someone with big tits. Tell someone with big tits <laughs> or small tits. You know, we don't discriminate any size, any tits, or tits. dick and balls. Yeah. Whatever size, tell someone. Or if you have both. Listen, if you the next person you see that has tits or a dick and balls, walk up to them, give them one of these. Jogging nerd.
0: There you go.
2: That's all I want you to do. Yep. And then we'll be friends forever. So. Remember, dick and balls, tits, that's the only requirement for the show listener <laughs> th-
0: thank you for spending this marathon Listen, of a we, show with
2: yes we thank you for spending we hope you learned something i hope i was able to tell some stories visit jock nerd.com for all the goodies we got lots of links to the show illustrations follow the rabbit holes click the links find something you like uh read it check it out you uh, you are guaranteed to find yeah, something i cool think you shit. almost
0: have to go to the show notes for this episode because we yeah. we're talking about a visual medium yeah. over audio yeah. so
2: well yeah that's <laughs> that's yeah. I, I blame it's Rug Boy for that. I blame Rug Boy. It's real tough to picture. But we'll have links to these images. And if you actually go to the website, that's where you can see the images. Yep, yep. And follow and play along. Yep. And uh, let us know what you think. And uh, that's about it. That's
3: about it. Oh, man. All right, people. I got to go outside and piss on the garbage again to keep the dogs away. Keep those <laughs>
2: dogs out of here. Uh, once again, my name's Imran.
3: My
0: name is Anthony.
2: He's the jock.
0: And he's the nerd.
2: And he's the Rug Boy.
3: Yeah de Roberto <laughs>